0: This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill.
1: Monday, Monday. Can't trust that day. A eh? Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN, The 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. What it be, one and all. I'm your host, Mike Gill. Josh Henning, producing today's show. You out there on a Monday edition of the Bash. Phils take two out of three against the Dodgers. Pretty good. Heading out west for a four-game set with the NL West leading Diamondbacks. We'll dive into the series, the Phils, and where they stand right now. In the playoff hunt, which it's way too early, but people like to complain about the fills, and we have to give you then where they are in the playoff standings, and then you'll say, well, it's too early for that. Well, if it's too early, not too early to complain, it's never too early to look at the playoff standings where the fills are just a game and a half out of the wild card, and uh, they stand... To play the Arizona Diamondbacks tonight and the next four nights out there in Arizona. And this is a place where they can really make up some ground in the wild card scene because they can beat Arizona. They could knock them down. Them and the Dodgers are in, uh, basically, uh, neck and neck in the West. Too early to look at that. I get it, but the Phil's seven out of eight and, uh, they take two out of three against a good Dodgers team as the Phillies got great pitching over the weekend. Again, you know, we talked about this last week. The Phils' pitching, when they signed this group of guys, I mean, not signed, but you got Nola and Wheeler, and when they added Walker with Suarez, you had those four guys, and the thought process was, we're going to get good starts from these guys. That should give us a good chance to win. With something last year, you know, with Eflin hurt a lot and Gibson was a little inconsistent, they thought they had the makings of a good staff. Well, over the weekend... You had good pitching uh for the most part. Uh Nola on on Saturday afternoon did not pitch well. But the Friday night game, you got a good pitch game. Sunday, you got a good pitch game from Walker. And obviously, uh, the Phillies' offense was more of the story yesterday uh, than it was uh, on Saturday where they didn't score a run. But I want to take a look at yesterday because one of the storylines of yesterday was two things. One, you had the Phillies... Uh, score seven runs, but two, we talked about it last week. Do the Phillies want to try to get Trey Turner back into the top of the lineup? Well, they made the switch on Sunday. You had Schwarber one, Turner two, but here's where they made the interesting move. I thought, and I'm going to really be interested to see what happens here with the lineup uh, for the foreseeable future. They've got to settle into something here, and this might be what you get because Castellanos hitting 312 has kind of changed the complexion of what you can do with this. If you're going to get this Castellanos, you can do some more things with the offense. You know, the problem was, what's the sample size of Castellanos that you trust? Well, are we at the point of the season where we trust that Castellanos is ready to, or, or, or going to stay consistent, I guess? He hit the home run yesterday, only his eighth, not, you know, tremendous power numbers. But the batting average at 312, the slugging percentage at 498, those are some really good numbers. So Schwarber 1, Turner 2, Castellanos 3. They hit Bryce Harper 4 yesterday, and that's the first time I believe they did that. I didn't see Saturday was an afternoon game. Did they do the lineup Saturday the same way they did on Sunday? I don't think they did because I believe – If memory serves, and no, they did not. It was Schwarber, Castellanos, Harper, third, Trey Turner, four. Because I think on Saturday, they asked Rob Thompson if he was worried about the lefties. If teams like the Dodgers did, you know, they had a left-hander basically start the game as the opener. And Rob Thompson was asked whether the lefties in the first inning would be a problem, and he said no. Well, he lied because the Phillies went and broke up. Uh, They went with Harper in the four-hole so that they didn't have two lefties come up against that starting pitcher in the first inning. So Schwarber led off, Turner hit two, Castellanos hit three, and that put Harper in the four-hole. And, you know, I thought really you had Turner go three for five, you had Castellanos go two for five. You had Harper go two for two with two walks. So that three, four, five was exactly what you signed up for when you spent the money on Turner, Castellanos last year, and Harper. Those three guys got the job done. Bohm struggled in his return with three strikeouts. You got a nice game from Bryson Stott as he went uh, two for three with a couple of ribbies there. And, you know, Marsh, two for three at the bottom of the lineup. So, the Phils lineup had a lot of balance all the way through. They pounded out 13 hits. They got seven runs, and the really um, the story I think was Turner going three for five, had the double. You had a uh, lot of excitement with Trey Turner this weekend. I thought was kind of one of the stories of the weekend. That was one too. You take a look at the pitching, and yesterday you had Taiwan Walker. And I know a lot of people complain that the Phillies pulled him from the game, um, and they blame Rob Thompson for that. I would imagine it's not Rob Thompson who makes that decision. It's probably predetermined before the game starts that, hey, uh, Taiwan Walker, it's uh, probably about 85 pitches or the third time in the lineup that they don't want him to see uh, the, the Dodgers for a third time. Now, Walker seemingly was a little bit upset during the game he was asked after the game about it he seemed to cool down a little bit but you know look people getting mad at Rob Thompson come on you guys know better than this by now especially if you listen to the show you know we had David Sampson on the show uh, last week or two weeks ago former team president of the Miami Marlins and you know he basically explained that those decisions are made before the game begins You know, they sit in a room somewhere, and the GM and the powers that be, they map out the day. Hey, Taiwan Walker, don't let him face the team third time through the order. So, yeah, he's cruising along yesterday, five innings, two hits, five strikeouts, pitching well. And, by the way, Walker is starting to turn the corner a little bit, right? So here's Walker turning the corner. He's pitching well. And the fans want to see him go. Well, the Phillies analytical team saying no. Walker can't keep going in that spot. And quite frankly, Phillies fans are the greatest, right? All season long, Walker stinks. He was a bum. He was a bust. Horrible signing. Well, the day he pitches good, same Philly fan thinks if they would have left him in the game, he probably would have gotten out the Phillies do what most teams would have done in that situation. Don't let the starter face the team for the third time in the lineup. They go to a tough lefty against Freddie Freeman, who's a left-handed hitter. Most of the time, analytically speaking, that's the move, right? Don't let the pitcher face the lineup for the third time, even though he's cruising along. Taiwan Walker doesn't exactly have you know, some track record of of, of success here. Uh, most people are like, wow, Walker exceeded my expectations. <laughs> so the Phillies' analytic department would say, even if he's exceeding expectations, don't let him face the Dodgers lineup for a third time. Freeman comes up to the plate, so obviously the move is to go to the left-hander. Your tough lefty is Soto. Well, he gives up a home run. Well, Philly's world goes crazy. I mean, why'd you take him out? Same guy says Walker stinks. Can't have it both ways. Just because you would have left Walker in doesn't necessarily mean Walker would have got the, the the result that you think he would have gotten. They'll make that move every time. That's not a Rob Thompson move. That is, I said, if you want to be mad, be mad at the analytics. So I heard so many people this weekend. I saw social media was going nuts about Thompson. He took him out of the game. If you listen to our show and you heard from David Sampson, nothing personal, former team president of the Marlins, he explained to us, you know, that's not really a decision that the manager makes as much as it is a decision that the team's front office
2: makes prior to the game. I promise you that the front office is involved and goes through pre-game what the plan is and how it's going to work. We're with the manager before BP, after BP, right until the manager takes the field for the anthem. Then we're back in the manager's office after the game where we'll talk through what went on during the game that may not have been what we planned for. Or maybe the decision was made that was different than what we had spoken about. Or we'll talk about evaluating players who are not executing the way we need them to and talk about whether they need a rest or whether they need to be sent down. We'll talk to managers about all those things, but managers are the ones who really execute the plans that come from the front office.
1: They execute the plan that comes from the front office. In other words, Walker's not facing the Dodgers for three times around. And if he does. That is a data point against you, Rob Thompson. If you let him pitch and we told you before the game to take him out and you leave him in there, these are the things that get a guy like Joe Girardi in trouble. Hey, Girardi, Walker's not facing them three times around. And Girardi says, eh, stuff it. I'm leaving him out there because he's pitching well. Well, ultimately, that ends up catching up to you. If you don't, basically follow the blueprint that you were given before the game. So I see people angry about Walker. Walker pitched well, and that's what you should be happy about. Not complaining about the decision to pull him out from the game, but the fact that he's starting to kind of find his footing and find his place in the rotation and start to give you more quality innings. Now, Freddie Freeman's one of the best hitters in baseball. He's having an MVP season. Soto, he's your tough lefty. He gives up the home run there. But I'll give the Phillies some credit because after a disappointing situation there, look, the Phillies are up 3-0 at the time. He gives up the home run. Now it's 3-1. But the Phillies get the run right back. So they get that run, scrub it off. The seventh, they give up another, but then the Phillies offense gets the three runs in the seventh. So every time the Dodgers kept coming after them, the Phillies answered. And that was a good sign over the weekend. Alvarado coming back. I thought that was big to get him back. He had a couple of walks. He looked a little shaky out there, but he got the, the, um, he got out of there with, uh, the return from the injured list. And then Kimbrel, man, I'll tell you what. <laughs> Kimbrell gets the save with two strikeouts. He has really kind of settled into this role. I don't know if I trust him yet, but he's throwing 97. He's hitting spots. That fastball has really got some life on it. So Sunday's game, yesterday's game, 7-3, I thought was a really impressive win just because you got Walker, a guy you signed, who got you the five innings. You would have liked to see him go more, but I think that, you know, obviously as we kind of mapped out, he was probably, Rob Thompson was probably told ahead of time he's not facing them three times. Soto, the lefty, you'd like to see him win that battle against Freeman. But, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Freeman got the better of them, But that was the only run he gave up. The Phillies answered with a run. Dominguez gives up a run. You know, Dominguez is the guy that I think... Um, you know we I'm waiting for it to kind of take that next level that next jump. He's just kind of been nondescript so far this year. 609-403-0973. So let me know your thoughts on watching the Phillies because I'll say this. A lot of people, you know, I think felt like this team has been disappointing. This team has not met expectations. And I've kind of been the voice of reason saying, guys, calm down. It's early and you had no Harper and you got, you know, I was having a conversation uh, Saturday. I said, do you think Trey Turner is going to hit 240 all season long? Well, now all of a sudden Trey Turner's up to 248. You know, if you look at where Trey Turner is, you know, what he did this weekend, right? Uh, Bob Wankel is going to join us tonight at 5 o'clock from Crossing Broad as we always take a look. Uh, on Fridays with Bob at the weekend. Then we look back at the weekend. Well, Bob wrote in his Phillies observations, Trey Turner, 10 for 24 during the homestand, 417. And one of the things, if you're watching Trey Turner, you're starting to see home runs, hitting the ball much harder, doubles. He's seemingly starting to turn things around. And with him starting to turn things around, and getting more production at the top of that lineup, you're starting to see. You know, Schwarber. I don't want to say he's turning things around, but he has certainly started this month. Or, you know, Schwarber's never going to hit. I, I was having this conversation over the weekend. You know, Schwarber's a 220, 230 hitter. He's not a great average hitter, but he's hitting one seventy one, which is even way below that. So even if Schwarber got himself up to two hundred this year, you're talking about him going on a thirty point run just to get back to 200, but guess what? That means he went from 170 to 200. That's a pretty big swing. I mean, it's sad to say, but that's what you're looking at. His on-base percentage, 323, not great, should be better for the leadoff spot. But Schwarber giving you something. Turner giving you something. Castellanos is the guy. I mean, last year, Castellanos just never gave you anything outside of maybe a week or two. He did not have a string of a month or, or this, Um, that what you're seeing from him now getting Harper to kind of maybe get going here you know that top of the order one two three four if you can get that that group going all at the same time the way the pitching's going right now the Phillies have something for you so I'm interested to see the Phillies fans out there your kind of thoughts on this team where they are are they starting to make you feel a little better about them? I think the thing that's making me feel better, well, I look, I, I didn't really feel bad about the team. But what I feel is coming around that makes me feel better is the pitching. The pitching, you let's go back to Friday night. Because in the game on Friday night, you get Ranger Suarez. I mean, it shouldn't be overlooked, but the fact that they played on Friday, you almost forget about it. Suarez went six innings, at eight strikeouts in the game. You know, this is what, the third, I think, straight start in a row now for Suarez. He goes six innings, four hits, one run, eight strikeouts. Suarez is really starting to settle into his role. So if you can get Wheeler and Walker and Suarez, I mean, obviously you know what Nola is. He's up, he's down, he's all around. But those four guys should give you quality starts. Quality starts are listed as six, I think six innings or more is the definition of a quality start. Uh, The Suarez game, though, I thought he really looked good. And the one thing, too, on what night was that? Friday night, the the Suarez game, Schwarber with the home run to win that game. That was the walk-off home run in the the extra innings, right? He hits the home run, not in the extra innings, in the ninth inning. Um, Schwarber hits the walk-off. Schwarber on Friday night, two for three, three runs scored, a home run to win the game. They had Turner that night go two for four. Harper had a hit. Castellanos had a hit. You you had the top of the order again. If you can get that top of the order to give you consistency, Schwarber, Castellanos, Harper, Turner, however they want to configure. You throw Real Muto. You got Bone back now. That should lengthen this lineup up. But if you have, and like I said what what uh, take the Nola start out. They won two out of three. That's what I'm more concerned with. Take the Nola start out there because he um and i know that the whole pit, what what's going on with the pitch clock up there did you read i i saw this article i did see it i didn't read it and i saw thompson got thrown out of the game on saturday for complaining about it
3: right so the thompson thing is is a little bit of a variation on the original story so the athletic wrote this breakdown the pay, apparently The Phillies have the quickest finger on the trigger for the pitch clock of any team, of any stadium in the league. What I didn't know that I learned from this article is it's not the Phillies' responsibility. It's Major League Baseball's responsibility to make sure that whoever is running the pitch clock is doing it properly. And the Phillies have complained to Major League Baseball that, hey, it feels like I'm having to get up there and pitch a lot faster than other people are. So, and the athletic breaks the whole thing down, but apparently the Phillies have complained twice about this. The Nola thing is interesting because the Nola issue was he didn't like the baseball he was given. And if you listen to Nola's explanation, his explanation after the game was, is I thought I was speeding up the game By throwing the ball away to the side instead of throwing it back to the catcher to the umpire. And then the umpire got mad at Nola for doing that. And that's when he got penalized for it. And Thompson came out and basically lost his you-know-what on the umpire. Because the umpire basically came off as a total turd. Like the guy who earlier in the year maybe threw out Real Muto in the final spring training game. It had that vibe to it. like. Literally, how many times do you watch the baseball game in the major leagues, Mike, and the pitcher says, I don't like this ball and throws it away, right? Right. You know, that's literally all Nola did. And the umpire is throwing his arms at Noah like you know, like he's like you're know, really mad at him. It's like he's like really mad that Noah didn't throw the ball back to the catcher and then get a new ball and throw it back. And Noah's explanation was is I'm trying to speed up the game. I know this clock is about to start any second. That the moment he, the ball is in my glove, the clock's going to start. I'm thinking if I throw the ball away, I'm going to speed up this process.
1: Right. Well, that that whole thing, regardless. Nola six innings. He got into the seventh. You know, he had seven strikeouts. He got into the seventh inning. He didn't pitch. Horribly. He gave
3: me some length.
1: But you had no offense that day. No. No. You had nothing going, so it wouldn't matter what. No. He didn't pitch horribly, but six runs, too many runs. I mean, yeah. that's the problem. He had the two walks again. The walks is the thing with Noah this year that it's been completely out of character for it's him. It's been perplexing. Yeah. Uh, well, when you had a game when Cody Clements had to come into the game again, I think this is the second time he's pitched in a game <laughs> this season. I think it
3: might be actually the third. They, they just did not
1: have anything <laughs> offensively. In the game, I think they had uh, six hits in the game, but they just had never had a feeling. Trey Turner, at least of the of the guys, he had a hit. Uh, Stott had a hit. Uh, Cody Clements, man, he just keeps on going. He just keeps hitting. Got to give him some credit. I mean, look, I don't want to play him every single day. Um, Clements has appeared in four games this year. That's crazy. Pitching. Pitching wise,
3: yeah. yeah. Wait, you would you have guessed he appeared in four games this year?
1: Um, no, but, you know, his father was pretty darn good, so maybe he has it in him. Maybe you know, if you're going to pick a... Like in the past, for instance, the Phillies would put a position guy in a pitch. They had uh, the guy Haseley. Remember him, Adam Haseley? Adam Haseley, pitched in college. He, he went, And he was really good at Virginia. And I always said, when you brought a position player into the game, how come he wasn't the guy?
3: I mean, Cody Clements has allowed one run
1: in two and two-third innings. Is he any good? I haven't seen him throw. It's like junk ball. He's not throwing gas like his dad? No, definitely not. Well, like, was- I want to see the Angels, if, if like, would they let Mike – I'm sure they would not never. But Mike Trout, we know around here, was a very good high school pitcher. Yeah. Like, through in the 90s. Like, I would like to see Trout come in just throwing gas. You know, like uh, Cody Clemens, just be, like, the rocket like his dad. Like if he wanted to, I think funny. some of these guys just don't want to let it go. I mean, it was like let it let it rip, I right? Think.
3: Let it really rip. Yeah, it was funny because Schwarber mentioned after he hit the home run, he said, "Maybe we need to have you know Cody Clemens' dad pitch batting practice again because I hit the home run tonight and we
1: won the game." <laughs> right? His dad was throwing BP, which is weird because generally, people who pitch are not good BP pitchers. Like I stick at throwing batting practice. Like normally if you're a pitcher, you're not a good BP pitcher. You hate it. No, because, you know, you're, you gotta take, you gotta pull off the gas a little bit. And that causes you to kind of almost aim it instead of throw it. And if you're just aiming it, you're all over the place. And if you're, the only way I can throw like anywhere near the plate is if I throw hard enough. If I try to take some off and I'm all over the place. Got That's you. why I was surprised to hear his dad throws BP. Unless he's out there just chucking 90. Sports Bash, Live, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Download the app in the Apple Store or Google Play. Uh, coming up, this is an interesting story. Uh, it's not a report. It's just an idea. People are looking for ideas and teams that the Phillies, uh, the Sixers, could come up with to move Tobias Harris. Well, Bill Simmons has an idea next. A sports station that hits a home run every time. Swing and a drive. Forget it. Right field. Way
0: back. Look out. Second deck and it's gone. Kyle Schwarber with a mammoth home run over the right field fence into the second deck. It's 97-3 ESPN. South Jersey's home for the best Philly sports
1: talk. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early, 229 sports Bash monday good to be back on a monday here hope you had a good weekend had a beach weekend for the first time right people agging out on the beach saturday sunday had some nice weather feels like a little summertime at the jersey shore 609 403 glenn from eht chiming in on the text board what up glenn Says, does Thompson get to be manager at all? is he just a puppet for the front office? I understand they're being taught before the game between the manager and the powers to be. And then the game starts. Does he have the power to do anything a manager does during the game? Exactly how much is scripted before the game that can't be changed during the game because Thompson feels a certain way. Can he manage at all? Sampson did discuss that. He said he didn't want to call the manager. A token head. Yeah. I mean, he said like, but. In other words, if they make decisions off the script and it doesn't work, they're keeping track of that.
3: Right. So a lot
1: of the managers don't want to not follow what was discussed because if they do something and it doesn't work, then he said that's how managers get fired. It
3: it goes back to what Joe Madden said. Remember after he was fired by the Angels, he talked about how analytics have become too involved in the game. Yes. He said, you know, sometimes we're taking – the ability to just make baseball gut decisions away from these guys. And, and
1: Madden is credited for being kind an of like one of the guys. first analytics guys. But now his point was it's become way overly hands-on.
3: Right. So the idea is that the Madden part of the big part of the manager's job during the game is handling situations in the game. You know, it's not as much, you know hey, I got to do a double switch here, or hey, I got to, you know, bring in this pitchings pitcher out. But he has a guideline of, like, okay, well, this is what we're going to do in each of these situations. And as you said, Mike, if he, devi- if he decides to deviate from the game plan, the front office is tracking, all right, what did they get right? What did they get wrong?
1: Yeah, and look, I agree. Like, I don't love it. And you don't almost want to believe it, but – Here's Dave Sampson, who was the team president of a team, and he said every team is doing it. Right. And it's not just select teams. It's every team. And I think the Phillies, like when I hear it from him, like at 1st like, eh, maybe the Phillies don't do it, maybe Rob Thompson, Dave Dombrowski, The general manager of the Phillies we always forget is Sam Fold. He is technically the GM of the team, and he came from Tampa. Correct. You got a guy coming from Tampa. I would imagine they are very heavily influenced By analytics.
3: Yeah, and at some point, you know, it's not that the manager doesn't do anything, but we have to change how we look at the manager to understand that the days of Joe Torrey, you know, writing up the the lineup card and handing it in every day, that is different now. And the game is different, by the way, Well, to answer
1: the question that, Glenn, is he just a puppet for the front office? He's the guy that executes the game plan. Correct. You know, is he in on the game plan? Sure. I don't know. Maybe he has the loudest voice in the room. That I can't confirm. But when people look at a lineup, that's usually probably coming from the general manager. They sit before the game. They say, look, they got a left-handed pitcher going. We're going to sit so-and-so today. They have a right-handed pitcher going. We're going to sit so-and-so today. Hey, what happened yesterday? The Dodgers started the game with a left-hander in a bullpen game. So Rob Thompson was asked on Saturday or before the game whether or not he would be concerned with Schwarber and Harper hitting in the first inning against a left-handed opener. And he said no. Well, what happened? He got the lineup card handed to him. And what happened? <laughs> Harper was hitting fourth. So... I don't know who made the lineup up. You can go and do your own uh, thoughts on that. I tend to believe Sampson. Look, the guy worked in Major League Baseball as a team president for how many years? 14, 15 years? He won a World Series, for God's sakes. So I think he is well-connected. He has a very good understanding of how this league works. And I think it's very cool that we have the opportunity to hear from a guy who was a team president. And his podcast is called Nothing Personal. In other words, I'm giving out the tricks of the trade. It's just business. It's nothing personal. I'm telling the listeners of the podcast. I'm listening. You know, he's a guest on our show. He's telling our listeners, this is how it goes down. Don't blame the manager. Blame the team. And then, look, I know the manager's the one out there taking the bullets for everybody. So it's unfortunate, right, that he's the one that kind of takes the bullets for everything. Yeah, but he's the one.
3: It's similar to how you and I talked about years ago, Mike, how Brett Brown, he takes the bullets for the Sixers organization for years
1: Yeah, with the media. Now, Samson says that the game strategy is discussed, you know, because Glenn asked, how much is scripted before the game? This is what. David Sampson, former team president of the Miami Marlins, told us here on the Sports Bash.
2: We will have discussed pregame. Here's what we're doing. We don't want that pitcher, say it's anybody, say it's Zach Wheeler. We don't want him going five innings if he throws 45 or more pitches in any inning early in the game. So literally to that level of detail, we're going to talk it through. And if there's a time where there's a mutiny, where the manager does something that we did not pre-approve or that we don't understand why he did it, that becomes a data point in our evaluation of that manager in terms of during game. Even the use of the bullpen, we've gone through and mapped out who we want ideally in the 7th, 8th, ninth. who we want in the 7th if it's... Maybe our closer, because if you're a certain part of the lineup because of how the game goes, then we want the closer used in the seventh or eighth. All of that is discussed pregame. It's all done not just with analytics, but with discussion. And if managers don't follow through on that plan, then you get a problem.
1: Glenn, I hope that answered your questions, because it's a fair question. It's a good question. That is a former team president breaking it down. So you asked yesterday, why'd they take Walker out of the game? Well... Consider the pitcher. If he throws a certain amount of times, we don't want him throwing 45 pitches in an inning. And if he does, then he's not going any more than five innings in the game. And then when you talk about, this is where I have to believe Samson. Right? This is where I have to believe him. Look how the Phillies used their bullpen last year. They used Dominguez in the seventh inning when the, when the things matched up in the seventh. They used Alvarado in the seventh inning when things matched up in the seventh inning for Alvarado. It was pretty clear that the Phillies used their bullpen last year, how it was mapped out before the game.
3: Thompson talked about last season to the media about how we put pitchers in based on matchups. We don't have a literal closer setup, man. He says, I'm bringing guys in because of matchups. So, if he's bringing guys in because of matchups, and the front office and him are meeting about those matchups before the game ever starts, then, Mike, I'm assuming that the matchups, that's the way they play the game. That's how this organization wants to use their bullpen.
1: Yeah, I think if you watch the Phillies, you do see how Sampson is making sense with some of the things because you're asking yourself, why is Rob Thompson doing this? And you might say, I can't imagine he wants to do some of these things. Right. But this is what is being mapped out before the game. Now, he did say it's not all analytics. It is discussed. So Thompson could have a voice in the room.
3: Yeah, for example, you know, maybe Sam Full turns to Thompson and say, Rob... You're around Trey Turner. How do you feel about moving Trey Turner back to the keyhole? And uh, then maybe Thompson said, I think you can do it
1: now. Yeah, he might say, hey, guys, I'm thinking it's time to make the move with Turner. Right. Now, I think the analytics department said, yeah, they got a lefty throwing. Let's break up. Let's move the three lefty, the two lefties so they don't face the lefty in the first inning. Right. So they broke him up yesterday. I don't know if that's Rob Thompson saying it. I don't know if Rob Thompson said, Hey guys, Turner's starting to heat up. Let's move him up to the two hole. Or
3: maybe they're all saying it. Maybe Could they're be, all
1: yeah. agreeing. Cole from LBI says, Even Buck Shawalter, he's not making the Mets lineup. He's complaining about how the analytical guys make the lineups there. Well, they don't have a lot of choices. They stink. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, good question, Glenn. Good conversation. We'll keep the conversation on the fills going. Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City. Our weekend review with Mike coming up next here on the Sports Bash Plus. Later on tonight, we'll talk fills with Bob Wankel. When we come up in the 3 o'clock hour, Bill Simmons thinks there's a trade to be made for the Sixers. We'll discuss it coming up at 3 o'clock, but when we come back, Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City is on the Sports Bash.
0: Now, Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN, South Jersey's
1: sports leader. 244 Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. We'll do a little hoops in the 3 o'clock hour, game five tonight. Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City is here. We spoke on Friday, the Phils were getting ready to play the Dodgers, and we said well, I want to see what happens in this Dodger series. Well, two out of three, does that change things for the Phils? We start to feel like, all right, this team has found their footing. They're in this for the long haul. 31-33, and 33, game and a half out of the wild card. Mike McGarry, what do we learn about the Phils with the weekend against the Dodgers, who swept them out in L.A.?
5: Right off the bat, uh, the starting pitching continued to be uh, very good with the exception of Agnola. Tyron Walker goes five good innings yesterday. Uh, Ranger Suarez continues his excellent success on uh, Friday night. And you also see some karma starting to go uh, the, the Phillies way. Uh, Schwaber with the game winner uh, Friday night. Uh, second straight walk-off win. So you have a feeling that things are going in the direction that I think you put it good there. Uh, they kind of have a sense that they've gained their footing. These are some big games in Arizona. Arizona's 40-25, and 25, one of the surprises of the season. And then they've got the the pitiful Oakland A's and then the Braves and the Mets at home. Again, what I've always said is, hey, get to 500 at the end of June and then get through July. And if you look at their schedule in August, there's an awful lot of home games against a lot of bad teams in August. So, But what the Phillies have to do is make sure they're in position where if they play well in August, it can reap the maximum amount of dividends for
1: them. Yeah, and I thought over the weekend, you know, a couple things that stood out. Obviously, uh, Suarez Friday night and Walker yesterday, they're starting to get that quality starting pitching that they thought they got. Nola, of course, he was Nola. He didn't throw well. He throws well the next game. But the Suarez, that's like three straight for him, and Walker uh, is starting to find his footing.
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I think Suarez is a big deal. Right. And I think his absence at the start of the season, although people definitely noticed to to notice of it, I think, you know, we didn't really realize how big of an impact it had. You know, he's pitched great since he's come back, Uh, you know, after his first couple of starts again, he needed to find his footing, find his rhythm. And that's a big deal. You know, Nolan's going to be fine. Wheeler's going to be good. But if you can show Suarez out there and have three, like, consistently good pitches, and then you get what you get from Walker, who had been up and down and now has been good two starts in a row. Then you can sort of navigate the number five spot, right? That was Dave Dombrowski's point, you know, earlier this season. If the other four guys pitch well, they can work their way around the number five spot. But if the other four guys are struggling, then the number five spot becomes even more magnified.
1: Yeah, and then the offense, Mike. That's uh, yesterday we saw for the first time. I want to get your thoughts on the lineup. Turner. We discussed it the other day. Do they want to get Turner back to two? Well, it didn't take long. They moved him to two. But we what we didn't think was them moving Harper out of that spot. Now they yesterday was interesting because of the fact that they had uh, you know um, uh, Harper. In the in the three hole yesterday, so or the four hole yesterday. So, do we think that will be the configuration that they stick with uh, to put him in that spot?
5: Yeah, I, again, they're looking to break up righties and lefties, and I don't think it mattered. You know, Bryce Harper might want to hit third, but I think he can also hit fourth. I don't think that's a big, uh, big deal. I think what you what uh, is happening again. We knew this team was eventually going to hit. It took them a while to get going last year. They hit. They're built to hit. They're built to hit home runs. In many ways, they're built to out-hit their problems, right? And they just didn't do that the first two months of the season, but they're starting to do it now. They're too good of a lineup to have everybody one through nine not hit. Some guys might have a down year. Some guys might have a great year. But they weren't going to continue one through nine not hitting. Now you've got Schwaber coming alive. Stott has a good game yesterday where you know he had gotten off to that fast start and then had kind of slumped. Castellanos has been good all season. You know, Harper's been, you know, pretty consistent. Uh, you know, they need JT to sort of get it going a little bit here also. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I like the lineup. We knew the lineup was going to hit at some point. They're too they're good a hitters the fact we're one through nine we're all gonna have bad years well
1: mike really in the friday night game and the sunday game they got one the, the one two three and four spots pretty much carried them in the two wins that was the best sign really for the lineup was that turner schwarber castellanos harper those four guys pretty much carried them and if they can get that coupled with the pitching starting to turn around this is where we're starting to see Well, they have won seven out of eight
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, we can talk about the guys in the bottom of the order. You can talk about this guy or that guy, but they're stars, and those four guys you mentioned are stars. They're stars. They're guys making the most money. They've got to hit. If they don't hit, they're not going to win. So those four guys got to hit, and they're starting to hit now more consistently, and not coincidentally, the Phillies are winning. And then, then when those four guys hit, and then what you get from Stott yesterday with two hits and a couple RBIs, that becomes even more magnified. But you can't count on people like Cody Clemens or Stott to sort of carry the team. What you get is those four guys hitting, and then what uh, guys like Clemens and Stott Give you, it's like an added bonus. That's what pushes you over the top.
1: Yeah, Mike McGarry from the press of Atlantic City is with us. Bills, uh, you know, win two out of three. They're a game and a half out of the wild card race, which might be a little early to start looking at that, but this is going to be interesting because now they go out west and they got this Arizona team. You know, every week, you know, over the weekend, oh, how can they face, uh, how can they stand up to the Dodgers? This will be interesting, too, because the Dodger games are at home. The fact that they got to play four against this Arizona team, we might uh, get another clue if this Phillies team is ready to kind of get get off and make a run here.
5: Yeah, it's a very good Arizona team. Zach Gallon, of course, from Bishop Eustace, a star pitcher. A lot of good, talented young players. They're 40 and 25. You know, a lot of this is, you know, is Arizona going to last? Are the Pirates going to last? I don't think the Pirates are going to last, even though they took two or three from the Mets this week and are are still in first place in the NL Central. I think eventually the Pirates are going to fade. But I think Arizona is here to stay. And uh, Philadelphia – never really seems to play well in arizona even when arizona is bad Mm -hmm. that's one of the ballparks where they struggle texas is another place you could send you know a lineup of all-time great phillies down to play the worst players in the history of the (laughs) texas rangers and see the texas rangers would take two of three or sweep them right so same thing with arizona philadelphia always seems to kind of struggle with arizona Four games out there big, and I know the Oakland A's only have 17 wins, but they're even playing a little bit better. They've won five Uh, in a row. They have 17 wins, and they've won five straight. Correct. Correct. So, I mean, they're not even, you know, a couple of weeks ago when you looked at this trip, you said, okay, maybe we split in Arizona and we'll sweep in Oakland. You can't say that now because the A's are actually playing better. So, this is an interesting trip for them. Again, I look the end of the month. I know they're two games under right now. Get back to 500 by the end of the month. And go forward from there. That would be my goal for the Phillies.
1: Yeah. I, I, you know, you're right too, because they have the four here and it's like Arizona's been playing much better. Oakland's won five in a row. The seven game road trip out West after, you know, finally kind of finding your way. This is a tough spot in the season for them to kind of have this. And I feel like, you know, there are eight games out of the national league and this is where you're feeling the impact of not playing the 18 games in your division.
5: Yeah, because you can't make up those games, right? Uh, it's harder to beat teams head to head and have a, a game count for 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 uh, basically double the value. Not only do you win, but your division opponent loses. So you can't say to yourself, "Well, we've got you know 14 more games against the Braves to kind of catch that uh, to catch them on the eight game uh, lead." So you're right. That makes these games when they come back from this West Coast trip home against the Braves and home against the Mets. Just as big. I think this is a big stretch uh, for the Phillies. I would not turn out, you know, uh, I'm not ready to sign off on the Braves quite yet. You know, remember the Mets had a big lead in June. The Braves still have some injury problems with the pitching. Uh, you know, I think they can be a little vulnerable, but the Phillies and, and the rest of the National League East are going to have to win
1: some games and, and get on a hot streak to kind of catch up. Mike McGarry press of Atlantic City press of ac.com here. Uh by the way, NBA Finals Game 5 tonight. We got uh, the Joker and, and the Heat and the Heat are going to try to bring back Tyler Hero tonight. That's uh, they're, they're pretty desperate. It looks like uh Denver in 5 uh to finish this thing off. So we'll keep our eyes on that as well. Uh Mike, I know you had a very busy weekend. It was good to see you on Friday and we'll keep our eyes on the Phils. We'll catch up on uh, later in the week, pal.
5: Alright, looking forward to it. Gotta drink some extra, uh, Diet Cokes, a little coffee, stay up late with the pills. No, nah, man, I, I got the peach, on, so. I got the
1: peach accelerator. Oh,
5: you got the peach <laughs> accelerator. There you go. You're set. You're set. You're ready for a doubleheader out west. Peach <laughs>
1: accelerator. There you go. Uh, Alright, man. Appreciate all right. it we'll see you down the road. Thank you. Mike McGarry, Press of Atlantic City. Always fun, of course, uh here on the Sports Bash Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. We mix it up here. The Peach Accelerator. Yeah. You know, I walked into <laughs> I was talking about this Friday. You guys thought I was kidding. I walked into the kit uh to the studio today and uh, Danny Ryan, who produces our weekend stuff, was producing on site for me on um Friday. So the people from the accelerator brought him two cases of the peach um, uh, drink for me. You know, they were like, hey, I want to thank Mike for trying the drink out. Here, we got him two cases. And then I came into the studio, I had kind of forgot about it. And when I came into the studio today, there were two cases of the peach accelerator in the studio waiting for me.
3: Yeah, a pleasant surprise for you on Monday morning.
1: It was. It, it was a uh, because you know what's funny. So yesterday I was out and about, and we were doing a little uh, little shopping stuff for my girlfriend's son. He has like a dance coming up or something, so we had to go get him like a suit or whatever. And one of the places we stopped into to pick up some some uh, soap for the house had the accelerator because we were hitting the wall a little bit. Okay. And I said, here's the drink right here. They had it at the place I was at. Nice. And then I forgot about it, and I came into the studio today, and it was sitting on the floor for me. So, good job, Danny Ryan, for bringing it in. Yeah, Danny I Ryan. thought he would have left it in the truck.
3: No, Danny Ryan brought it in first thing when he came back with the truck on Friday night.
1: Good job, Danny Ryan. All right, we come back. Bill Simmons has an idea that would probably excite most Sixer fans We'll discuss coming up next on the Sports Bash, live, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app.
0: This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios,
1: here's Mike Gill. 3 o'clock, Sports Bash, 97.3 ESPN. Mike Gill with you. Hey! I want to tell you about my friends over at TRIO North Wildwood. You know, the TRIO guys, gals, the whole team over there, I met them a couple of weeks ago. Big news, right? They're open Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and they'll be opening an extra day come June 21st. But this is a spectacular spot in the summertime. Make your reservations on Resi. Easy to do, but... telling you as the summer months get here and you're trying to find that place to go out with friends and family even if you're going on that first date or you're whatever you're doing it pretty much can accommodate parties of all sizes dinner for two party of 20 they have seating on the streets right outside so you can be inside outside can't express enough how much i enjoyed my visit uh, to Chef Gus, Debbie, Paul, the whole team at Trio North Wildwood, 700 New Jersey Avenue. Meatloaf uh, is backed by popular demand. I had the pork chop. I can't stress how much I enjoyed that enough. Uh, again, uh, if you're looking for some summer plans this weekend, never too early to make plans for the weekend. I'm always thinking about the weekend. I'm actually going away this weekend. So, if you're thinking about your weekend, Trio North Wildwood, Casual elegance meets delectable dining. Just a great spot. 700 New Jersey Avenue, North Wildwood, trioedw.com. All right. So Bill Simmons, uh, you listen to the Bill Simmons podcast regularly or not really?
3: Not regularly. I'm more of a Rosillo guy than a Simmons guy. But Rosillo was on Simmons' podcast. Correct. So when there's that cross-pollination, you do get a little extra, you know, attention to it. Yeah,
1: I like when Rossillo's on there as well. Uh, I don't religiously listen to the Bill Simmons podcast. He's kind of a Celtic guy. But every now and then, you know, he'll go off on a little tangent and give some thoughts. One thought that he came up with is a way for the Sixers to maybe free themselves of this Tobias Harris contract, if you will, right? So yeah. Bill Simmons has pegged the Sixers as his favorite to land Bradley Beal. This isn't a report from him. Right. This isn't like the Vegas odds or yada, yada, yada. We don't even know that the Wizards want to trade Bradley Beal. But what Bill Simmons lays out here is why he thinks Philadelphia – would be the favorite to land Bradley Beal. And in the move, it would be a way to get um, Tobias Harris out of Philly in exchange for Bradley Beal. See if you like it.
6: My odds-on favorite is Philadelphia, and I don't even think it's close. Beal and Embiid, they're friends. Embiid was trying to get him two years ago, which I kept telling people on this podcast. They ended up going with Harden instead. Embiid was pushing hard for Beal. Harden's going to leave. There's a lot of ways to go. And if you're Washington, the money that he's making where it goes into the 50s pretty quickly, I don't think that's an asset in the second apron NBA. I don't see it. But if you're Philly and you're going to lose Harden, and now I have the shooter that's probably a better fit with Embiid anyway. And I have Tobias Harris that is an expiring contract. There's a couple future draft picks I could probably throw that I could probably find in my in my pocket somewhere. And if you're Washington, it's like, you know what, we got out of the Beale contract. We have Harris isn't expiring
1: and we're rebooting everything. So he basically says, take the Harris contract and start over. Go through the season. You're not winning with Beale this year. Just take the Harris contract, play with him for the year, then get him off the books and start over. Sounds like a sounds like a plan, right? I mean it sounds like something that Washington should at least be open to, I guess? I mean, if you're Washington and they call you and say, hey, you've got Beal. You signed that deal. You're not winning with Beal. Why not take Harris? The money matches up. We'll give you a couple picks. You give us Beal. Let's call it a day. Does Washington do that deal?
3: I think they had to at least consider it because they brought in an entirely new front office who is not – committed to anyone who's currently on this team. This organization and this team was built by two different people in the past. You brought in a completely new front office and executive and he's going to want to make his mark and I don't think any of us think that a Bradley Beal Kyle Kuzma Christos Porzingis trio is going to contend in the Eastern Conference anytime soon.
1: No, they're not. We know that. The Wizards are a team that is perpetually stuck. They are essentially where the Phillies The Sixers were before. The Sixers a little bit better than the Wizards were, although the Wizards made the playoffs, I think, last year, right? The the Sixers knocked them out, or was that the year before? year before. So they were essentially where the Sixers were before the process. They were a good team, not a great team. They made the playoffs one year. They didn't make the playoffs the next year, although I think they make the playoffs. Put it this way. The Wizards are currently worse than when the Sixers were pre-processed. The Sixers were kind of like a 6 7 8 seven, eight, nine seed. Washington's not even there. Right. Although Washington- I would say Bradley Beal is better than any player the Sixers had in that time frame. But
3: the problem is as we've as we've had to explain to the audience multiple times, one guy can't do it by himself. And the problem is is that unless unless you have LeBron James in his prime, you're not getting to the postseason with abandoned Misfit Toys. you got to have a real team. And Bradley Beal, Bradley Beal isn't even like a top 15, top 20 guy. So how are you expecting to try to make the postseason with him as a centerpiece?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you put Beal and B together, obviously That's now... That's very different. The question is, this is, in his mind, as he mapped it out there, as you heard what he said, um, is that the odds on favorite is because Embiid and Beal are friends and that if Harden's going to leave or Harden is going to leave, as he put it, you're Philly, you're going to lose Harden. Now you have a shooter who fits better with Embiid. So is Bradley Beal Embiid's answer to his Jamal Murray?
3: It could be because, again, you need someone to play next to Embiid that's going to spread the floor out. One of the problems for Joel when he had Ben Simmons, for example, was Ben Simmons couldn't shoot or he wouldn't shoot at least, and he would clog the lane. So you need somebody who's going to be a legitimate threat from the perimeter.
1: So let's hear how Harden could factor into this deal to kind of make this all kind of come together. Here's Bill Simmons on the Bill Simmons podcast.
6: The other way to do it is if Harden ends up going to Houston and you try to figure out some sort of goofy sign-in trade with them where you can get the entire salary cap exception from trading Harden out, then you could just trade for Beal and keep Harris. So let's say they say to Houston, oh, you're going to take him anyway? Well, what if you do this? Start his contract at 47000000 million. We'll give you like a second round pick in 2029. We'll trade him to you in your cap space. And then we get this trade exception. We just move Beal into it and keep Harris.
1: Yeah, that's uh. so you would keep Harris in that scenario. You trade Harden out in a sign-and-trade situation. And essentially, you would have a Bradley Beal... And Tobias Harris staying here, and you know, I don't know if you are going to lose Harden. I wouldn't be adverse to that situation where you, I mean, because if you are trading Tobias Harris out and you are losing James Harden, yes, you are getting back Beal, but you need a defensive presence. I mean, at least Harris plays some decent defense. He's not great, but if you are just trading Harris out, you lose Harden. Now, Harden's not a great defensive player, obviously, but you are losing Harden's ball handling, his assists, and his scoring. The problem everybody will answer is, yeah, you get that during the 82-game season and then eight of the 16 playoff games. You don't get it consistently. correct? Well, listen, there's only so many guys you get consistent play from. We don't know that Bradley Beal is a consistent playoff performer.
3: No, but I think that there is something to be said for the fact that, you know, Bradley Beal has performed well in the postseason before. Now, his team hasn't performed well in the postseason but he has. So maybe that is something where you turn around and you say, hey, I know at least this guy will be able to make shots when I need him to in the postseason. Something that Harden was unable to do in game six and seven.
1: We think. I mean, I don't think Bradley Beal has enough of a playoff track record, honestly. I mean, how many times, how many games is Bradley Beal, how many times have the, the Wizards made the playoffs in Bradley Beal's um
3: a few times. I mean, you got to remember he goes back to the wall era,
1: too. 2014. All right. He's played eight playoff uh, series. He is three and five. And in those games, he averages 23 points a game. So, not bad. I mean, uh, I you know, we talk about guys. Uh, he's 34% from three in the play. Like, you know, We talk about guys. uh, His regular season scoring, he is twenty three. So he's about the same. I mean, he's not a guy who's had like the. He's carried his teams on his back. Now the question with Beal is, the way I look at Beal is this: he is a six four shooting guard. Correct. So if you make a deal like that. Are you essentially moving Maxi over to the point and saying you're going to be our primary ball handler now? Yes. And you're now playing Maxi and Beal in the backcourt together. You have defensive challenges. Beal is not a great defensive player.
3: No, and maybe that's where, because Simmons now Simmons and Rascilla didn't get in this in the pod, but I was thinking this at least to ask you, Mike. If you don't trade Harris, but you're able to get Beal still in some hardened thing, could you maybe get another team involved in that trade? Send Harris elsewhere to get maybe some more perimeter defensive help. Like maybe turn somebody else's. Hey, we need an expiring contract. We want to give up on somebody else.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways they can you know go from from.
3: Because if Harris doesn't have to be the contract to get you Beal, Harris could be the contract to get you somebody else.
1: Yes. Well, the way he just explained the the audio you just played.
3: Right. And that's where I think what Simmons is thinking is interesting, at least for me, is that if you say, hey, I don't need the trade Harris to get Beal over here, I can use a sign-and-trade with Harden in a three-way situation to facilitate this, then what you're doing is is you're turning it into a – I still have this Harden uh, ass or this Harris asset that I can use for another deal.
1: Yeah. Uh SportsPass Live 973 ESPN. So let's hear a little bit more about the Beal contract here and what the Phillies uh the Sixers would be taking on in this situation. Let me give you the Beal numbers.
6: Right now it's forty three point two. Next season, forty six point seven. Jumps up to fifty point two. 53.66 53.66 in the 2025 season. Player option for 57.1. So he's got a, a, like $205 million remaining after after we get through. So right now, if you trade him before July 1st, he's at 43.2. And, you know, Harris fits. Like Harris makes 40 and there's a way to make that work. And Washington would just be
1: basically cutting bait. Maybe they could reroute Harris, buy him out, whatever. That's a lot of money for Bradley Beal. Now you're in a situation where Bradley Beal needs to be the right piece because you're only able to reshuffle the deck so many times around Joel Embiid. So you're basically saying, we're going to take three chances with Joel Embiid and Bradley Beal. They better be the right pairing. And if they're not, you've essentially, I think anyway, maxed out your chances with Joel Embiid in his prime.
3: But... Beal is also about, what, five years younger than Harden is? So you're bringing in a guy who – is he going to cost you a lot of money? Yes. Yes. But is he going to – What do you say? The
1: one year you're paying him over $50 million? The final year of the deal is $57. Jeez. How do these teams even come – how do you come to your senses and say, I find that to be a deal that I'm willing to pay somebody?
3: You come to that position because you feel like this guy is your superstar or your best player and you feel like you have to keep him. That's the else. problem though.
1: You're the Wizards and you have no other choice. You know signing Bradley Beal, you're still he's not good enough to win you a championship, but you're you are stuck. You have to sign that deal or if you let him walk then what are you? And if you sign him, you know what you are. But the alternative is we're horrible as opposed to just being average. And this is, you know, again, I hate to go like, hey, this is why the Sixers did the whole process thing. But they didn't want to just say we're going to sign the guy because we tried that with Andre Igadala. Right? We tried that with Andre Igadala. We gave him the max contract, and that didn't work. Right. So the Washington Wizards, now Bradley Beal's better than Igadala is. Sure. but. They know that Bradley Beal's not good enough to win them the championship as the best player, yet they're stuck and they have to give him 50 million. The salary structure is is ridiculous.
3: And this is part of the reason why a team like the Wizards is bringing in a whole new front office. Because they're saying this past front office gave Beal this massive contract and Beal has a no-trade clause in his contract. Don't forget about that part. They, they acquired Porzingis. They brought in Kuzma. They gave Kuzma a contract extension. And so the owner is telling the, the organization, I don't think we're doing the right thing. I'm, I'm going to clean house in this front office. So now they bring in a new guy. And of course that guy says, I didn't draft or trade for any of these guys. So I can do whatever I want.
1: Yeah. And that's why I think this Bill Simmons thing. Makes a little bit of not a little bit makes sense.
3: It does make sense because there there is there are legs to it. There is something there. This is not like you know the people on TV who are trying to land Dean Willard in Miami or New York, right? This is Beal and be our friends. You know the co- one comment that um, <laughs> that Simmons makes in the podcast is that the best business to be in in the NBA is that I need to make my superstar happy. Business and. Russillo tells him that he's right because if you're a team like the Sixers, you're a team like any of these teams, who is your superstar? All right. Are you building around that guy? Yes or no? The answer is yes. Then why not bring in his friend? If Embiid and Beal are literally friends and they like each other and the speculation is out there that Embiid wanted Beal. He was at the top of his list. And Beal says, I will waive my no-trade clause just for the Sixers. Yeah. Well, I can see that happening. I can
1: too. I, I, I don't, I think if Bradley Beal said, Hey, I can't win here and there's a team like the Sixers, I don't want to go to Portland for Dame Lillard. I don't want to go to, I don't give, Indiana, you know, for uh, Marcus, uh, I mean, um, uh, what the, Turner, what's his first name? Miles Turner? Miles Turner, right. Yeah, I don't want to go to like mid market team that's stuck in the middle. Just to switch middle markets, right. but if you're telling me I'm going to a top a team that I would place in the top five chances of winning a, a, a NBA title, fine. Then I'll 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 re I'll rethink it.
3: And this is where the no trade clause I personally think comes into the conversation because Beal can say basically no to any deal. He can tell the Wizards go pound saying I'm not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So the Wizards actually don't are not at a position of strength here. They don't have the negotiating power. It's similar to what what people were criticizing the Jets for in the NFL when it came to the Rodgers trade. How the Jets gave up more than they probably should have because Rodgers said I want to go to the Jets. Well, Beal has a no trade clause. He can tell the Wizards "I this is the team. Make it work. And the Wizards have to make it work. The Wizards are not in a position of negotiating strength.
1: No, they're not. But Somebody just texted in something that kind of on the – he said, Beal is 29, a player in their twilight. I don't know that he's in his twilight as much as I worry about his health. He played 50 games this year, 40 the year before. His scoring average has gone from 30, 31, and the last two seasons he's at 23. So his scoring is down. His games played are down. His three-point shooting percentage is down. He shot 30% from three two years ago. Last year was up to 36 and a half, but he is nowhere near the three-point shooter he was earlier in his career when he was hitting at like a 40% clip. His career average is 37, but that's because he went over 40 three times early in his career. He is not the same player. I think we just hear Bradley Beal and say, this guy, he's been the best player. Is he the best player on a bad team? Is he a really good player on any team? I think he's a really good player, but I I, I wouldn't say this is just a slam dunk grand slam home run. But I would say this. If you told me I could just trade Tobias Harris in like a second round pick or something like that just for them to take to say, we'll take the Harris contract, you get Beal, you're getting the better player, and we're getting out from under that contract, I think it's a win-win situation. But I actually think Washington puts themselves in a much better situation to at least reset their franchise.
3: Now, Ryan Rossillo who was on the podcast with Bill Simmons, he kind of gave the argument against a Bradley Beal for the Sixers.
4: I'd like to hear that. All right, here's Russillo from the pod. Not exactly the biggest Harden guy, but at least Harden gets into the playoffs. (laughs) Beal can't can't even get his team in to anything that, like – I think one of the worst, I was talking with somebody about this the other night. I think one of the worst playoff series as far as like talent, that Isaiah Thomas Celtics team that beat the Wizards in the second round six years ago, like that with was, Kelly the first, that was the first sign of like, what's wrong with these guys? But Wall was still there. Morris was still there and they, they talked to everybody and whatever. And then I feel like everybody kind of became team Beal because Wall was hurt. Wall was like a thing. And Beal was good in
6: that game seven. I remember he
4: was, but. You know, if you're, if you're worth this kind of thing and it kind of gets back to your second apron deal is maybe even just two years ago, you go, all right, this contract sucks, whatever, not a big deal. But now you're going, wait, I don't know that we can have and even Lillard kind of falls to this. Can you have this kind of transaction with dudes who owed $60 million in three years with this new apron design?
1: Yeah, that is... I cannot believe the amount of money that he still has owed to him. I mean, because then, you know, you're thinking about... All right, you're going to start – at what point do you start complaining about the amount of money you're paying Bradley Beal? Right. But do you
3: get Beal? And if I I can bring back my theory to you, I gave a couple weeks ago back to this conversation. If you're the Sixers, do you say, look, we're going in for one year. We're going to get Beal. We're going to have him beat. We're going to have Maxie. Nick Nurse is the coach. We're gonna make some deals. We're gonna move hairs, build up the roster, we're gonna go all in for one year. And if it doesn't work this year, we're gonna blow it all up so we can get the twenty twenty five draft pick back.
1: I don't think you can I don't know. Because I think you're stuck with the Beal deal for three years because of what he's paid. And you know, you're not I don't think you're gonna punt on Embiid. If you don't win the first year, now, if you got swept in the first round or something to that effect, you may reevaluate. But I don't think if you get knocked out in the second round again, you're going to say, well, we're going to break it up. You say, no, this is the first time that this crew Beal and Embiid, we're giving them the three shots. We're Mm. giving them the length of the Beal contract with Embiid and Beal together with Maxi. You got to throw Maxi in because it would be a Maxi Beal backcourt, which would be terrible defensively. Um, Well, that's
3: why you got to improve the rest of the team defensively. You know, you got to you got to make sure you have DeAnthony Melton in tow. You know, maybe you trade Harris for like a three and D guy. You know, if Bruce Brown's a free agent, do you go chase him down in free agency? Like, stuff like that.
1: Well, there's a lot. You know, the free agency are going to be more interesting now. I mean, not crazy interesting, but because you've got, like... Um, well, Fred VanVleet just
3: opted out. Yeah, and you got an the,
1: kid, the guy from Miami, um, Gabe Vincent. Gabe Vincent's Guys like be out that, there. they're now free agents that people weren't even thinking of. Before and right. now you might be thinking more of them because but if of this run.
3: Mike, if you're the team that gets Bradley Beal, you don't need to be in the Van vliet Gabe vincent conversation anymore, but you can be in maybe the conversations for another guy, and maybe that guy you get at a little bit lesser rate because the other guys go off the board first.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways you can go, but I think Rosillo explaining it about Beal is a valid conversation where you would say... Beal has shown that he is not the lead guy on a team. I right. mean he's right. Harden can at least get you to the playoffs by being the best player in your team. Beale can't even do that generally.
3: But guess what? I don't need Beal to be that guy here. I need Beale to come in here and be the sidekick.
1: Uh this guy said can't blow it up. Josh Harris wants to move downtown, need to draw it into that building to pay the new mortgage. I don't think the Sixers I I don't I'm not saying that he's not wrong, this guy. They can't just go full Trade everybody away, well, but I don't think they I, would. I don't again, think they would.
3: The only reason I said that was because for those who don't know the full story, the when the Sixers traded Al Horford, they traded a 2025 first round pick, but the pick is top six protected. So if the Sixers were bad, you know how the lottery odds work. If you have one of the worst records in the league, you have everyone gets an equal chance at the first pick, and then it just kind of breaks down from there. If you're a bad team. For the 2024-25 20, season, you'll get that pick back. So that's my working theory. Are, are you willing to give it one shot with Embiid, then implode it for one year, get that top five, top six pick back, draft a new guy, pair that guy with Maxi, and rebuild the roster with a, a cleaned up salary cap? Not saying it's ideal, but you know you're not moving that building. Thought into what? provoking. Twenty. It's what twenty thirty talking about for that building, a new building. Oh,
1: I think it's twenty thirty six.
3: Okay, well, still twenty twenty five to twenty thirty, which I don't
1: even know what's happening with. I mean, you know, who knows if that's even going to happen? What I'm saying that
3: that's you. You're blowing up the team ten years before you're moving into the new building. Well, within those 8, 10 years, and you got a guy who's in the top five, top six. You picked the right guy. You know, for example, one of the reasons why Portland is being rumored to trade Dean is because people are assuming that Scoot Henderson is going to Portland. Well, Scoot Henderson is expected. People, th- some people think that this Scoot Henderson would have been the first overall pick if it wasn't for Victor Wambayana.
1: Well, if he's the second pick, of course he would be the first pick if it's not for Victor. Wambayana. No, but I mean like people. Th- <laughs> like
3: no, I mean like people think he's so great. Like he is Yeah. I'm saying, but like, yeah,
1: if Victor Juan Bañana wasn't in the thing, yes, he was Like would people be the are first. saying,
3: like, if Juan Bayana is this drafts LeBron, people think that Henderson is like this drafts Dwayne Wade, basically.
1: Yeah, no, listen, I, I um I see the premise and everything. I feel like as long as Embiid is here, that you are looking at a situation of them doing whatever they can to try to to build the team. With Embiid to try to win a championship. You're never going to see them just completely punted away until Embiid either says, I want to be traded or he retires or he's broken down to the point he's not the same player.
3: Look, you look at a guy like Bradley Beal. Is he the best player on a team? No. No. But can he be and before number three? Right.
1: And listen, you're giving up Tobias Harris, who you know can't. Correct. So it's is it worth taking a shot? The only apprehension I would have to it is the injuries. Wow, well, the injuries and God, you're stuck with fifty plus million dollars three years from now. That's a huge number. I did not realize it was that big.
3: But does Daryl Morey say I don't care what happens three, four years from now thinking that championship next year?
1: Uh, Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN. It's good conversations, good stuff uh, for the Bill Simmons podcast. We got sound of the day in an hour from now, Sports Bash is live on 97.3 ESPN. Football at four is coming up in about a half an hour. Stick around on 97.3 ESPN. Black Kia.
0: Now, more Sports Bash with Mike Gill. 97.3 ESPN,
1: South Jersey Sports Leader. 3.33 Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Who Josh just told me in the break that he's in a WNBA fantasy league, to which I said, I don't think I can name five WNBA players. I proceeded to say Lisa Leslie, Cheryl Miller, and they're not in the league anymore, apparently.
3: No, that's like 15, 20 years ago. Sue Bird.
1: She's retired. She's retired. You said Brittany Griner. Griner was my first pick. And you said Kelsey. Plum. Would she be the first pick in the draft? No, the first pick- Kelsey Pluma. Yes, I do know her. She's the girl from Washington. Yes, if yes, she plays for Vegas. I wouldn't have known that.
3: Well, the reason why she's a big deal is also because she married Darren Waller, and then a week later, the Raiders traded. Yes, Walmart.
1: I do remember that story. Uh, Tarasi's still playing? She is. She plays for Phoenix. I think I called one of her games. Maybe. Like when she was like in high school? And no, kind of college, league? college, when she played at UConn.
3: Oh, when you were at WVU? Yeah. Gotcha.
1: Is, um, oh, there's somebody that just came to my mind and then popped out that I totally forgot. <laughs> Can you describe her at least? Oh, yeah, um, Deladon.
3: Oh, Deladon, yes. yeah. Does she Washington. like the first pick? She'd be in the top ten. She'd be a top ten pick. Okay. Her problem is some health issues.
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember her whole story, she went to UConn and then she decided against going to UConn and ended up transferring to Delaware. She yep. was going to play, she played volleyball at Delaware That's right. and then decided to play basketball. Yeah. You know, she had like the whole story with her sister, I think, uh, is like autistic or something and she wanted to be closer to her family. Yep,
3: that was
1: the E60. Yeah, I don't know that I could be in a, uh, a WNBA fantasy league just because I don't have the depth of the knowledge.
3: I mean, I know the players, but apparently I don't know them as well as I thought. You're 0-6? I'm 0-3 I'm in the first three weeks.
1: Not good. Well, I mean, how many teams are in the WNBA? 10? Mm, 12? I think there's
3: maybe 14. Let me double check.
1: To have enough teams to have, like, how many teams are in your fantasy league? Who what? started this league? Did you just enter, a like, a free league, or did somebody recruit you?
3: I, I have a buddy who was like, hey, you should try this. <laughs> I was like, sure.
1: You, he put together the WNBA league.
3: It looks like. Hold on, one, two. There's twelve WNBA teams. There's twelve teams in my fantasy league.
1: Wow. So, so you're going deep. Yeah. Twelve team W. You found twelve people to do the WNBA fantasy league. I know almost none of these are good for my one friend. <laughs> That's astonishing. Does anybody else find that that is the most unbelievable? That he found, well, not you, the guy who runs the league, found 12 people to be in the league. Like, I'm not, I don't care less. I'm not looking down upon the people. I would not have, I I said, I couldn't name, I I know what your name is. She's still playing um, Shanae Ogumake?
3: Yeah, she's out there.
1: She's still playing. Is yeah. she? A, is she would she be a draftable player?
3: She'd be a draftable player, but she's definitely not a top ten player. No, I don't even think she went top twenty in our draft. Honestly, like I have Kelsey. Shame on
1: someone who took her a
3: little early. <laughs> I mean, I have Kelsey Plum on my team. I have Candace Parker no, on my uh, team.
1: Okay, now I know who Kelsey Plum is. She was the girl. She was at Washington, and right. she was really good. Yes, but. Did that translate to the professionally? Because she was at Washington in the Pac-12. You know, she was lighting people up. Yeah. But now that she's a pro, is she – like, she's the all-time – isn't she the all-time leading scorer in women's – Women's college basketball. College basketball. Yeah. So has that translated to the pro game?
3: Yeah. She, she's actually the 10th best fantasy player in – WNBA fantasy. <laughs>
1: Jeez, what website hosts this?
3: ESPN. The ESPN okay, fantasy. Okay, well, app.
1: they have the, the contract, right?
3: Yeah, she's averaging 15 points a game, four and a half assists.
1: Now, the girl from Iowa, she's a junior, though, right? She's a junior, yeah, she couldn't. And
3: so the WNBA doesn't let you
1: come in. No, I thought she, you could. The no. girl from, uh, I thought the girl from Villanova leaving early.
3: Well, she was leaving early, but you have to have at least three years, kind of like the NFL
1: good for them.
3: You know, they, they make these girls be out of high school for about three
1: years. I like that. I like that. Well, because the original
3: good... theory was is um, Kathy Ember actually did an interview with Billy Schwime last year. In the she's local, right? Yeah, she's from Billy's uh, same high school, actually. And she talked about how they want the ladies to get at least an associate's degree before they come the WNBA.
1: I don't, I have no problem. I think that I think the NBA needs to follow suit to be honest <laughs> with you. I would like to see the NBA uh follow suit and make these uh players uh go three three seasons. But uh all right, so so the um now how many games do they play in the W like 40 or something like that?
3: Uh I got to double check. That's a good question. I actually don't know how many games they play. And I'll be
1: the fantasy. Well, league. this, yeah, this would tell you, if I, if you can't answer these simple questions. Maybe I shouldn't be in the then league. You should not be in the league. Like, well, I am 0-3. So. I asked you, how many teams are in this league? Not how many teams are in the fantasy league. How many teams are in the WNBA? 12. Well, you had to look it up, is my point. Oh, right. Right. You didn't know the answer when I asked you, and, uh, whatever question I just asked you here, how many games are, are do WNBA teams play? How long is the season? Uh, looks like it's... My guess was 40. Am I off? You're very close. It's actually 38. Where did they come up with the number of 38 games? I don't know. That is a weird... Like, we're going to play 38 games. Where, Like, all of these leagues. Like, why 82? Why 162? Right. This is like your world. Why Give me a round. Why couldn't it be 160? Why, why not 165? 65? Right. Why 162?
3: Right. Why does it have to be not a 5 or a 10?
1: Doesn't make any sense to me. But 38 games is the number. Like somebody sat around in a room and they were like, 38 games. Sounds perfect. Let's go 38. That's what we're going to do. So (laughs) you're watching the WNBA. Is that – I haven't – so the season just start? They play in the summer. I know that.
3: They actually started a few weeks ago. Apparently they – Oh, so according to what I was told, they usually start the weekend before Memorial Day weekend, and then the season goes through Labor Day weekend. Usually, now one site I'm looking at says the WNBA seasons are usually 40 games, but some there have been years in the past where they've actually only played 38. That's odd. I don't know why. It's not really giving me a full explanation on this uh, website. This is NBC Sports.
1: So last night I didn't watch the WNBA. No? Oh, no, man. I did not watch the WNBA, but I'm coming down. I'm on the last episode of Better Call Saul.
3: Okay, so you're you're almost there.
1: I'm on the last episode. So last night, I don't know if anybody else was having this problem with Comcast. I, I think was I b- know what
3: problem you're talking about, but go ahead.
1: Well, I'm in my bedroom. I have Comcast in my bedroom. Mm-hmm. I have YouTube TV the rest of my house. Right. But in my bedroom, I have Comcast. Don't ask me why. It's very convoluted. But when I was hitting to launch the app last night, the Netflix app, it wasn't launching. So I tried it like three, four times. Finally, it launched. You know, it says like you're entering a third party, blah, 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 blah. Show's playing. I'm in the last episode. Now, has anybody else the last, like, three episodes of Better Call Saul got really confusing? They were black and white. His name is Gene. I mean, I'm like, what is going on here? There was something that ended up happening that helped clear things up a little bit. But I was like, what is going on? Now, I heard the finale of Better Call Saul is, like, really, really good. Well, I'm watching. I'm, like, ten minutes in, and the app just crashed out on me. Black screen, totally, I was like, I mean, it was late, so I was like, thankfully, because I was fighting to try to stay awake to watch this thing.
3: Around what time is this? It was after 11, right? Yes. Because that's what happened to me. So I was actually not on Netflix last night. I was on another streaming app.
1: On Comcast?
3: On Xfinity Internet. Apparently, there was an Xfinity Internet issue last night. Okay. Because I was on Hulu at the time, and... I got a call from somebody who was on Netflix,
1: and they said to me. Well, cause like, if, like, if you go on, on Xfinity, Comcast, whatever, cable. Right. You hit the Xfinity button, and then it's like, The save. It, it's like save, used it, and then you go down to the end, and it's apps. Right. So I'd go to apps, then I'd scroll down to Netflix, and I'd hit Netflix. Right. And it would say you're entering, and then nothing would happen. Right. Or you could do the voice command where you just say Netflix. So then I I'd I hit the voice command, and I said, better call Saul on Netflix, because that's what it tells you to do. Oh, you can say this. I did that. Buckus. Nothing. So, finally, I turned the box on. I turned it off. I tried it again. Nothing happened. I turned the box on. I turned it back on. And then it finally launched. I got it to go. I watched about 15 minutes of the episode, and it just crashed right out on me. Oh, man. So, I was wondering... If anybody else was having that issue last night. I
3: was having problems loading apps last night for about maybe like an hour
1: period. Now, I'm wondering if anybody, because I have YouTube TV in my living room. Has anybody been having like a, the YouTube TV I like, I have no problem with generally. It was skipping. It's been skipping a lot.
3: There's been concerns Is it
1: because of the Comcast?
3: So there, remember the one NBA playoff game. Whatever you call it. Yeah, one NBA playoff game.
1: I heard Sling TV had some problems. Sling I don't TV. know what Sling TV. I've never I've never seen that platform as well.
3: I've never used Sling TV, but apparently Sling TV and YouTube TV both have had problems in the NBA playoffs.
1: I've been having problems with everything. This morning, I'm watching Get Up Problems. I'm watching, you know, whatever. It, it, it just keeps kind of skipping its way through. Right. And this has been happening. Now, it didn't happen on my outside TVs, which okay. is YouTube TV. Interesting. Yes.
3: Only inside the house.
1: Just the inside YouTube TV. Okay. Well, that's another
3: layer of complexities going on
1: here. Yeah, well, the inside TV, my YouTube TV is through the smart TV. Uh My outside TVs, they all have, like, um, Google uh, TV, like the...
3: Android TV? No,
1: it's it's like YouTube TV, but like the... Like the a, Chromecast.
3: Oh, Chromecast, okay.
1: But it's the YouTube where the interface is controlled through the with like through the app. Okay.
3: So the one TV is Chromecast, the other TV is through the smart TV yes. platform.
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know what's going on there. It's frustrating
3: though. Well, I mean, listen, I have like this um, morning I hit pause. Do you do you have Android smart TV platform or is another type?
1: Well the one inside is a Samsung. Okay, so it's probably Android. I guess. I don't know. It's not Apple.
3: Cool. because the reason I'm asking is because the one TV in my house is a Philips. The other one is a Samsung, and they both are different versions of Android TV, smart TV.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if it's just the last week or so. I'm noticing, like, everything keeps skipping on the TV here, and it's not normally like that. So I'm not, like... You know, hey, this always happens with my YouTube TV. I
3: mean, mine completely locked up at one point, and I rebooted everything, and then it was fine after that. But for about roughly an hour, I was having a little fight. I was having a little tug of war with it. You know, I'm trying to watch There's this show called The Night Legion on Netflix. And I was getting really into it. And then I started getting the spinning wheel of death. The night agent. Yeah, the night agent. It's kind It's got a little bit of a 24 vibes. Gotcha. It's the guy who works for the FBI, but he works in the White House. And there's a woman whose life is in danger and there's a whole conspiracy behind.
1: It. Well, tonight, NBA Finals. I'm going to try to finish the Better Call Saul tonight. This is it. This is the last episode. So, apparently, they were wondering what there's no uh, seventh season. I think Bob Odenkirk, the um, lead actor. I think somebody said he had cancer or something. Really? Yeah. So this is it. This is the sixth season. This is it. It's been a little bit of a interesting last three episodes. Like, they're all in black and white. and I, it's, it's, it's weird. Like, I was lost last night watching this. I said to my girlfriend, i go, the guy's name is Saul or Jimmy or Gene. What is going on here? Well, we'll see what ends up happening at the end there. Anybody in the audience watch uh, Better Call Saul?
3: By the way, uh, Odenkirk apparently had a cardiac event where one of the pieces of plaque broke off and almost killed him.
1: Yeah. I knew it was something like where he, he couldn't uh, do another season. All right. Sports Bash. I got some text messages here. I want to address on the Phillies. Uh, one on the lineup. We'll dive into that one coming up here on the Sports Bash live on 97.3
2: ESPN.
0: Now back Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN.
1: All right, 351 Sports Pass coming at you on a Monday. I think if you look at some of the uh, text messages we're getting, uh, Mike it says, I'd I like to think uh, Bohm could hit in the leadoff spot. Kids a contact hitter, puts Schwerbaum in the nine hole. It's the next leadoff spot anyway. uh that's how crazy we've gotten, right? Let's put Schwarber in the nine spot. He's got Bohm, Turner, Castellanos, Harper, Stott, J T, Marsh, Clemens, or Sosa. Schwarber, nine. Um no, I don't think that's gonna work. I like and that's coming from someone me who likes Boom a little higher in the lineup than they generally? I would hit Boom maybe in that two or three spot, but they don't for whatever reason like it, but you're not getting Schwarber in the nine spot. Sorry to uh, burst your bubble on that one. 609-403-0973. 609-403-0973. Yeah, I, I think the lineup that the Phillies put together now, we probably will not see the lineup by the time we get off the air tonight. Maybe game night will have it for you. Um we um we're talking about this earlier, is they went with Schwarber, Turner, Castellanos, and then Harper. So they got the two lefties out of the first inning. Now I'm wondering, you know, is this the first time they did this, if they're gonna stick with it, or was it for one game only? So that's something to keep an eye on when the lineup comes out tonight. By the way, uh according to Woj, about an hour ago, the first major domino of free agency, Fred Van Vliet has declined his player option and he is now an unrestricted free agent. So you know what that means. You can start to try to connect the dots to Philadelphia here where Fred Van Vliet, He mentioned it in a podcast not too long ago where he said, hey, if I'm not playing there and I'm here in Toronto, when he was asked about Nick Nurse. Now, Nick Nurse, speaking of which, he was on a podcast, the, what was it? The Hoops Collective, right? Hoop Collective, yeah. He was on the Hoops Collective podcast. Uh, I guess that one came out today, didn't it? Yeah, earlier today, yeah. Right. So. Nurse was on the Hoop Collective podcast with Brian Windhorse, uh Tim Bontemps, and uh, who's the other guy on that? that's on that podcast? Well, usually it's like Tim McMahon will be on there. McMahon. Well, he was on the one today. And they had Nurse on there. Now, he previewed the game, but he talked about his adjustment to Philadelphia, Joel Embiid, James Harden. And does he think they're on the verge of a title? So uh, Nick Nurse got the opportunity to sit on the uh, Hoop Collective podcast, but Fred Van Vliet now declines his player option of twenty two point eight million dollars. Here's the problem: he declined twenty two point eight million dollars. Right now, the Sixers can't sign a guy for that kind of money.
3: No, they don't have that kind of money on hand. So if you're you would have to do some serious roster gymnastics to get to that.
1: Big time. But they got the guy to do it.
3: What are you calling uh, Darryl Morey a
1: <laughs> He's been pretty good at finding ways to get it done. Uh, Sports Bass Live, 97.3 ESPN. Uh, one of the things that Nurse said on the podcast is that this is not a transformational type job. I think they're very, very close. It's probably wrinkles and tweaks the way he sees this roster. So does that give you a insight onto the way he might see the Sixers moving forward. Hey, coming up, it's football at four. A former Eagle takes a little bit of a shot. Sports Pass has that. Coming up next on 97.3 ESPN and the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. 97.3
0: 97.3 ESPN presents the Sports Bash with Mike Gill. It's time for Football at Four with Jeff Mosier. I think
2: our
6: track record in the last 20 years, how many NFC's titles, playoff appearances, and appearances in the NFC Championship game, those are some of the metrics I look at. And um, I'll compare our record with uh, almost anybody.
0: Powered by the Inside the Birds podcast. Now, live from inside the Matt Black Kia Studios. This is Football at Four.
1: Football at Four is powered by the Inside the Birds podcast. Adam Kaplan and Jeff Mosher. Mosher will be joining us in just a couple of moments. We'll talk a little birds and NFL with him. A lot of NFL thoughts on my mind as, by the way, Eagles training camp has been set. Ha ha! Got a music to my ears. It's not actually all that long from now that Eagles will be back at training camp. Single game tickets go on sale, I think, tomorrow. I'll get you that information. But I was more excited about the fact that the Eagles are going to be back and that we now know when they will be back as the Eagles will be back at training camp. How about this? July 25th. Is when the Eagles are back at training camp. July 25th. I mean, you're talking about about a month and two weeks from now that the Eagles, but single game tickets for all 10 Eagle home games go on sale tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Tickets can go to uh, Ticketmaster.com. There is a four ticket limit per household. And you have the training camp public practice at Lincoln Financial Field scheduled for Sunday, August 6th at 7 o'clock. I know a lot of people like to go to that as kind of a way to see the team up close and personal. Those tickets go on sale tomorrow. You get a chance to go to the stadium. Uh, you know, a lot of people like to go to the stadium but don't want to pay regular season game prices. You can go out to the training camp practice, the public practice at Lincoln Financial Field. You can get... Uh, Practice general admission tickets for 10 bucks. That starts tomorrow. There's also a VIP option for $35. And, uh, that one is on August the 6th. Eagles training camp opens on Tuesday, July 25th. So you're talking about really, uh, today's the 12th. So one, two, three, right? One, two, three. Four, five, six, seven Tuesdays from now, we are back with Eagles practice. So seven weeks from tomorrow, we're back at Eagles training camp. And then the preseason opener, which is on Thursday, August 17th, against Cleveland. They have that game at home, Indianapolis. So they have 10 times that the team will play at um, Lincoln Financial Field. By the way, the game against Indianapolis, I just am seeing this right now, the Thursday preseason game against the Indianapolis Colts is on Prime Video only. So preseason football is coming to Prime on Thursday night. That'll be the game where Prime gets like their one, you know, I guess, I don't know if they're one, they might be having a full preseason um Schedule, but that's where the prime team, uh, Al Michaels and Kirk Herbstreit, get their opportunity to kind of iron it all out, get their broadcast together. You know, people put the preseason football games on for multiple reasons. One, because it's football. Two, the announcing teams and the production teams and all that stuff, they need to get repetitions as well to get ready for the season. And uh, the Eagles preseason game against Indianapolis, that'll be on prime video. And then, of course, the regular season games. They will have eight regular season games at home, uh, and that all starts. But training camp is the big news. July 25th is when Eagles camp. That was announced today. And single-game tickets go on sale starting tomorrow at um, Ticketmaster.com. So I don't know how many people saw this over the weekend, but I guess was Miles Sanders, was he talking to Matty? So he was talking to
3: the media at uh, their their version of minicamp, mm-hmm. and it was reported by the Associated Press.
1: Okay, so I saw the story of the Associated Press. I know that's Rob Motte, who is the Associated Press NFL writer. Sanders essentially came out, and, you know, he wasn't too happy about his role in the Super Bowl. Right. Right? So he comes out and says, you know, final game, it's the last game of the year, all the marbles. Of course, I'm not happy with my role. He's like, and I don't care if this makes news or not. I wasn't happy with it. So here's Sanders basically coming out and saying now that he was not thrilled with his role in that game. So I wonder, did he make that known behind closed doors? and could that be part of the reason why the eagles now monetarily look he got a four year 25 million dollar contract so i don't think so but like was this one of the reasons why the eagles it's obvious and we'll talk to jeff mosher when he joins us here uh for football at 4 i know mosher said he would be a couple minutes late today so um but i want to lead into this with with that you know did why did sanders why was he not a big part of the super bowl and is that why we see two new running backs in here? You know, Sanders, four years, $25 million, And he had 1,268 yards rushing last year. Plus, people forget this. He had 11 touchdowns last year. And the Eagles now are going to have to find 1,200 yards and those 11 touchdowns. You're going to have to replace that. And you wonder, um now he had said, during one of their mini camps, that his goal is to get to back where he was as a rookie when he caught 50 passes. I've always wondered why the Eagles never got him back involved. He only caught 20 passes last year. In fact, if you go back to his rookie season where he caught 50, I'm wondering if you total it all up, if he had, let's see, he had 50, Yeah, 28, 26, and 20. In the three seasons. So he had, you know, about 80 catches in three years. He had 50 catches for 500 yards. He averaged 10 yards a catch. So one of the big questions is, is it was it Sanders or was it the offense? That the running back in Philadelphia was not a big part of the pass game.
3: Yeah, because we know that traditionally in today's NFL, running backs are used in a lot of passing situations. You know, you know that when Sirianni was in Indianapolis, just to use an example, they had Naheems Hines and he was a guy that was part of that, you know, two dimensional offense. You know, Jonathan Taylor runs the ball and the Hines would catch the ball before the Colts traded Hines away last season. You know, you look at a guy like Shane Steichen, he had a, he had Austin Eckler. Down with the chargers so do you look at the people who were here and say well you have coaches here who have thrown the running backs what's the problem specifically with sanders
1: well we've talked a lot about this during the season and in you know in the off season with uh when mcmullen was on uh, and john will be back during the football season he, he's just taking some of the summertime off uh here but we got football of four coming up in just a couple of moments of course with most but in our conversations with john he has kind of laid it out that one of the reasons why the, the the running back doesn't catch the ball in the offense all that much is because why? Well, Jalen Hurts totes it himself. So he's not making his progressions, you know, hey, A.J. Brown's not open. Hey, the tight end's not open. Hey, Devonta Smith isn't open. At that point, he's already decided, I'm going to take off. So if that's the... You know, the way that Jalen Hurts is looking at things, that's why John anyway thinks that the running back isn't all that involved in the offense. So we're going to get intel and some thoughts from Jeff on the limited OTA stuff that they saw here in just a couple of minutes. Uh But, you know, the one thing, so Sanders essentially, you know, he says, hey, uh, I'm not too happy about it. So... It'll be interesting. This is where I think this kind of comes back into play. Will the Eagles... Now, they have a new offensive play caller. So, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't hold as much weight. Sanders had seven carries for 16 yards in the game. Right? Seven carries for 16 yards. Not good. But... Will the Eagles... Offensive brass value the running back position more now. Was it Sanders? Was it lack of trust? I think that's something that we'll see pretty early on. Obviously, you got these two new running backs, um, two of which um, Swift, more of a pass catcher. Uh, Penny more of a runner. So we'll see how they end up using those guys. But we'll bring Jeff Mosher into the conversation now and get his intel from OTAs on the Sports Bash Live 97.3 ESPN for another edition of Football at Four. Don't forget the Inside the Birds podcast. Check that out on all podcasting platforms. On the latest edition, Adam and Jeff got intel on the team's OTA practices, so we'll get into that as well. But first, I want to get Jeff's thoughts on this. And Jeff... Um, first off welcome back bud happy monday to you secondly you know we saw the conversation or the quotes i should say from miles sanders over the weekend basically saying yeah i'm not i wasn't happy with the super bowl and the way it went seven times 16 yards in that game and my question really goes to was that more of the way the eagles view running backs and how they fit into their offense or is that more on miles sanders and what they thought of him
7: well, I don't uh, – and by the way, happy Monday to you as well. Um, I, I don't think that I, – I think that they've shown that they'll use their running backs when their running backs are effective, and especially if they're facing a tough opponent who's got a good beat on their passing game. So, Miles Sanders didn't have a great start. And I think that what we saw last year is even in, in sort of a career year, there were times that the leash was kind of short on Miles Sanders if he wasn't doing the right thing. But for the most of the year, he did. But you saw in the Super Bowl a couple of the early runs, trying to bounce to the outside, threw a pass to him, couldn't handle it. And uh, you you also saw sort of in, I want to say December-ish, going into January, that the team was starting to use Kenneth Gainwell more after kind of a rough start for his second season. So it didn't surprise me, obviously, in the game of the magnitude of the Super Bowl, that they had a low tolerance for... Anything Miles was going to do that looked like he wasn't ready for the moment, and when he bounced a few runs to the outside, uh, couldn't handle a pass. It seemed like they just wanted to get the most reliable person they felt, uh, you know, get the touches. And they, you know, they also threw the ball a lot. Um, They got up, and then all of a sudden, Kansas City came back on them. So, you know, obviously Jalen Hurts had a great game. They don't have a running game to me, Mike, that has always been predictable. It's always been. Um, a running game that they could shift to when necessary. Always wanted to come out passing, but you remember the Jaguars game, right, when it was pouring rain they just weren't throwing the ball really well and they shifted to a run game and all of a sudden it was like, bam, they just ran all over the Jags. It always felt like a great fallback for them when the passing game wasn't going. But even when it was a fallback, it wasn't always just Miles Sanders. It was going to be a rotation.
1: Yeah, now Sanders said uh, earlier in OTAs that he wants to get back to um, where he was as a rookie when he had 50 catches. He caught 50 balls that year. I think people almost forget that because he was almost non-existent in the passing game. 50 catches. He also had over 500 receiving yards, which was seventh best among running backs. So what do you think happened to him in the pass game? Is that more on him or the offense evolved into a different direction?
7: Wow, it's, it's you know, Adam and I, it's funny you say people forget about that, but Adam and I talk about that constantly. Just sort of the, the two stories of Miles Sanders, the first two years, the last two years, and, and there were success at times in both. Obviously, this last year was a great year for him numerically, and also as a runner, just a patient runner, seeing the hole, hitting it hard. We always felt he was misdiagnosed as, as too much of a dancer. It really wasn't the case. Um, but yes, in, in year one, he did something. Doug Peterson unlocked something in him that we didn't even see Miles Sanders do at Penn State, which was catch the ball. And not just catch the ball, but catch the ball downfield. If you go back to those, his rookie year, the games against Minnesota and Detroit, where he wound up uh, having some over-the-shoulder catches down either the sideline or the seam, the H-seam pass that you see running backs to catch the ball well, run a lot in the NFL. He was doing that. And year two... It was a very remember. That was the terrible year for them, and he just things didn't, didn't go right. If I'm not mistaken, I think that was the bad year. um And he just, he, you know, he, he was not sure-handed. He dropped passes, caught some balls, but not as much. So I would, I get it from his angle. He, he's, you know, reunited with. Well, I'm not reunited. He, he's back with a coach in Frank Reich, who thinks like Doug Peterson has the same style of offense. And, um, I would understand him wanting to get back to be that player he was his rookie year who caught a lot of nice passes down the field. However, I would hope that for his sake, he'd rather be the runner from his last
8: two years.
7: You know, the, the running back who was much more patient and grinded out some pretty tough yards over the last few years. I know we all made a big deal of him not scoring any touchdowns two seasons ago, but the tape showed you he, he was not a foot around the hole. I mean, he was hitting the hole. He was following blocks. He, was a, he was a harder runner than he was given credit for. Yeah,
1: I mean, 1,200 yards and 11 touchdowns. I think we forget that he scored 11 touchdowns last year. Right. Uh, the Eagles are going to have to find, you know, their way to get back to 1,200, whether they do it with one guy or multiple guys. But those 11 touchdowns as well, and, you know, you take a look at the – playoffs though it looked like gainwell started to kind of shift over already at that point and uh the writing was kind of on the wall now he got a big contract the the eagles weren't going to pay him what he ended up getting but you wonder if the writing was on the wall in the playoff that he wasn't coming back
7: yeah i mean i think the writing was always on the wall i mean not not that you know it was never uh gonna happen i'm sure it could have happened because you just don't know what what someone's gonna get from a contractual standpoint Um, But it was pretty clear that if Miles Sanders got decent money, that it was going to be from another team and not the Eagles. And, of course, he did. And, you know, I remember saying all year long, um, there's going to be one team. You know, it all depends on what happens with the other running backs who are free agents, and they all wound up getting uh, tagged. Right? Saquon got tagged, Jacobs got tagged, I believe, and then Tony Pollard got tagged, if I'm not mistaken. So Miles wound up being the best or one him and David Montgomery right there, one and two for free agents. And you just knew there was going to be a team that has a lot of cap space that's willing to pay a running back more than a team that doesn't have a lot of cap space and has other guys to pay would be willing to pay him.
1: Uh, over at Inside the Birds, uh, the latest podcast, uh Adam and Jeff got some intel on what they're hearing from uh, OTAs that just wrapped up on Friday last week, or I guess uh, Thursday of last week. So let's look at some of the things you guys are hearing about some of the battles. Let's go to right guard. And what did we learn from these uh two weeks of OTAs about where that is going to enter training camp?
7: Yeah, I mean, the lack of, um, contact. And, and when I say lack of contact, I, it, I mean, when you watch the drills, right? The team drills, they do like a six on eight. They don't have interior defensive linemen. They don't have offensive linemen. So really not, you only make a little bit about what you see with the, the way the group formed up. And obviously we saw Tyler Steen and, uh, both Jim, uh, Cam Jurgens get some, some right guard action. Uh, it's funny. I had an interesting conversation with Brian Baldinger, who was out with the OTAs and, we were just talking about the spot, and I asked him for you know an offensive lineman's opinion on it, and he said you know you got to think about it from a Jason Kelsey standpoint, not just the right guard standpoint. Jason Kelsey is an undersized center, and for the last few years he's had Isaac Saint Malu next to him, who was he's not a huge guy, he's not three thirty or anything like that, but <laughs> country strong. I mean, can really move people. Played at a pretty good level uh, when healthy for the last few years, and now you're talking about putting someone next him who's either never played right guard and Cam Jerkins has only played offensive line for two years, right, uh, at Nebraska and only center and is also undersized, or you're talking about moving a guy who's only played tackle in Tyler Steen out to right guard and seeing what that can do. And Brian said, um, which is something I hadn't thought of, he goes, you would probably want to favor the bigger body here. The, the bigger, stronger guy, whether it's Tyler Steen or even maybe Jack Driscoll, um, because Kelsey's an undersized guy. And when you have to put a combo block on Dexter Lawrence or the Giants twice twice a year and other big guys like that, those guys are 330, 340-pound defensive tackles. You need to know that if you're Jason Kelsey after that, while you're combo blocking, when it's your turn to move up and cover a linebacker, that the dude you're leaving to, to finish off the block on Dexter Lawrence can hold up. And I think it's it's worth wondering if Cam Juergens can do that. Now, he's got training camp to show it, but yeah, you would figure Tyler Steen can do it because he's been a tackle and he's used to going up against, and he's a bigger man himself, and he's used to going up against bigger athletes. Yeah. So um, I, I would think the coaching staff would like Tyler Steen to win this out. Uh, Cam Juergens has an opportunity, but he keeps playing center, by the way, on these maintenance days when Jason Kelsey doesn't have to practice. So sometimes those reps are taken away from him. And I wonder if that's just because this coaching staff knows it's, it's most likely going to be Tyler Steen in the end, or they do have a fallback guy in Driscoll who of all three guys, Mike is the only one that has actually played right guard.
1: Yeah. Oh, and I find him to be the interesting one. Cause you're right. He's the one who's played there, but he's also really the only guy they have to play the swing positions. Right. Right. Right, and he. By the way, I thought, and you know, sometimes I get
7: looks can be deceiving, but I thought he looked a little bit more bulked up uh, here uh, in, in OTAs on the upper upper arm area. So I maybe he, you know, did that, tried to add some weight, strength, just because he's competing for right guard, and that's a position that takes a toll. He's had some injuries in the past, and he wanted to be as big and strong as he possibly could to try to win the job.
1: Um, You mentioned right guard uh, of who they would maybe like to see there. Steen, they drafted him. Uh, Who would they like to see? You know, Sidney Brown is a guy you guys talked about on the pod. Uh, What do they see from him and who would they like to see win that job?
7: Yeah, I mean, I think they would love to see Sidney Brown win that job. I mean, he's a rookie, he's a third-round pick. He has a great skill set for the position. And if he does not, because of either poor play or – taking a while to adjust, and that, that wouldn't be a negative. It's a really difficult position uh, sometimes to, to learn and adjust to in a, a Fangio-style defense when you're constantly too high, but then moving into the box or moving into the post. Somebody else is moving into the box. You're doing a lot of pre- and post-that movement, right? So if, if he were not able to really excel right away at training camp and they couldn't start him, then you're kind of looking at going with Reed Blankenship, who's probably – in fairness, going to be best as a uh, number three, like a like a third safety or a backup safety, and then you also have maybe, um, I get you know Justin Evans. We have no idea what to expect of Justin Evans, and um, the guy missed three straight years before coming back to the Saints last year. And you almost forget and, uh, that he's uh, here,
1: right? You almost forget he's that
7: he's here. Yeah, exactly. And of course, Kavon Wallace, who I uh, you know when I watched OTAs, uh last week, he was um he was kind of like the first. No, he was not the first one. Out. Reed Blankenship was the first one with Evans. But then later, he wound up being first team with Edmund. So they're clearly rotating, as they often do. But I, I think we all know that the Kavon Wallace starting ship has, has failed by now. It's very, uh, he's going to be fighting to make the team. So, um, obviously, if Sidney Brown, who will have a great opportunity to start if he does acclimate and transition well, can be your starter. But if not, it, it's sort of like a, uh, a who's who of question marks. So, so there will so be every opportunity for Sidney. To, uh, to try
1: to win the job if he acclimates well. Yeah, all right, uh, Football 4, check out uh, the Inside the Birds podcast. And by the way, we got the uh, note today, the Eagles will open training camp July 25th. So you have seven weeks from tomorrow to rest up, buddy.
7: Oh, that's uh, seven weeks. That goes by so fast, Mike. You know
1: that. Oh, I was saying. I mean, it's going to be. We're going to blink, and it's going to be July twenty fifth, and they're going to be out on the field. I mean, it's going to be great. I said, I can't believe it. They they announced it today. I said, yeah, you know, July generally late it comes, and then I said that's seven Tuesdays from from tomorrow that this is they're going to be that they're going to be back on the field. I, that really flies by. You know how fast the summer goes.
7: Yeah. Well, you know, Nick Sirianni for seven straight weeks and you're going to bed praying every night that, that none of you he doesn't wake up any of his players in uh, police trouble or
1: anything like that. It's a long time. <laughs> Very cool. All right, man. Uh, we'll talk, uh Wednesday. All right. Take care. Uh, football at 4, Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN. Football at 4 here on the Sports Bash. Yes, we continue it all the way through the summer, looking at all the possibilities, the what-ifs. And you go, look, Miles Sanders – don't forget this. Sanders also uh, put the ball on the floor. Uh Turf, I guess you should say. That horrible turf at the Super Bowl. Uh, he fumbled the ball out of bounds. But I think that was a sign early that the Eagles did not have the trust in Miles Sanders. I'm Mike Gill. This is the Sports Best. Yes, Eagles, OTAs in the books. But training camp, we just learned July 25th. Can't wait. Can't wait. Another season coming back. All right. Coming up, Sports Bash Live. We got sound of the day. Somebody texted me in about the uh, Better Call Saul, why everything was in black and white the last three scenes. Okay. That's helpful. I did get a little, like I did, there's a part in one of the episodes where you find out, okay, this is like where they are at least, but I'm glad you kind of cleared that up for me a little bit. Thank you for that. What else did I see that I wanted to touch on? Oh, this story from the Oakland A's is kind of funny. I'll do that, uh, in about 20 minutes from now. We got Sound of the Day coming up next on the Sports Bash Live 973ESPN.com. Now, Bash on 973ESPN. 431, Sound of the Day, Sports Bash Live 973ESPN. Stick around in about 15 minutes tell you this story about the Oakland A's. The Phillies are playing the A's later on in the week. They're going to be in Oakland. And while there probably will be nobody at the game when the Phillies are there, they might have some people there tomorrow. I'll explain in 15 minutes. Let's get sound of the day. What do we got, Josh?
3: Well, I decided that, you know, it was an opportunity for us to maybe uh, have a little more lighthearted conversation today because... Charles Barkley was on the Kelsey's podcast last week. We didn't get to this last week because of all the craziness that was going on. You were at the LPGA this weekend, for example. So, But one of the conversations that came up, and it, it's a long pod, by the way. If anybody's wondering, it's like two-hour-long pod that we're, uh, we're scrapping from. So, But one of the conversations that came up was playing in Philadelphia. I always thought, hey, these are two... These are three athletes who all understand the dynamics of playing in a city and getting their perspective. Because you know the fans always have their perspective, right, of the city of Philadelphia. Well, these are what athletes think of playing in Philadelphia. Well, I wanted to start with Barkley told a couple stories in the pod, and I first want to play the the Sean Bradley story. So Barkley, I got to tell you
1: real quick, Sean Bradley. Yeah. So the Sixers had the second pick in the draft that year, Mm -hmm. right? And ah, the first pick in the draft that particular season, this is 1993, was Chris Webber. And he was pretty much the consensus number one. Right. The other guy was Penny Hardaway, you had Jamal Mashburn. But I remember being, now 1993, I'm what, probably like uh, 16 years old, I guess, something in that range. Maybe 15 and Bradley was so intriguing to me. I was like dying for the Sixers to pick this guy. Really, I was like a seven foot six guy. You know, he could play. Like at BYU, he could play. He, he wasn't a stiff. He, he was good, and he stunk. <laughs> but <laughs> I was a big fan of the Sixers taking Sean Bradley. Okay. I thought he was going to like change the game, and you know, then they went and gave him number seventy six and. Just it never worked out.
3: No, it definitely did not work out. Well, this was Barkley's because they're talking about playing in Philadelphia. And this was Barkley's story about his conversation with Sean Bradley.
8: I remember talking to Sean Bradley one time. I said, Yo, man, please tear your wife to shut the hell up. Okay. (laughs) I'm not even playing. (laughs) I'm not even playing for the Sixers. I'm a I said, yo man, please tell your wife to shut the hell up. Do <laughs> not start yelling at fans who are yelling at you. Yeah. It's like, well, my wife loves me, she's gonna defend me. I said, Let me tell you something. Not in this city. Not in <laughs> that ar not, that, not that arena. I'll do that Yeah. Hey yeah. after about two months you have to stop coming to games. I never heard this
1: before. I had never heard that. That's hilarious. No, I had never heard that before, that his wife would be in the stands, like, trying to defend the poor guy. Right. Oh, man.
3: And you can imagine Barkley's telling him, like, dude, like, you, you gotta get you got to get your wife to stop doing this.
1: <laughs> now, remember, uh, this is 1993, 94, 95. He yes. played for the Sixers. And much like Ben Simmons, a guy who was the number two overall pick, Simmons was number one. They ended up trading him to Jersey because he just never became the player that they thought he was going to be. Right. And part of the problem was he was so skinny, he just couldn't do anything. But he actually ended up having a somewhat serviceable career. Now, he was no star by any stretch of the imagination.
3: So there's a follow-up to that where Travis Kelsey jumps into the conversation with Sir Charles. By the way, for those who don't know, apparently Sir Charles and Travis Kelsey are like really good friends. They like discussed this on the podcast. That's how they got Barkley on the pod because Travis was on Barkley's pod before. Because Barkley does the Steam Room with uh uh Ernie Johnson. Mm-hmm. So here was the follow up to the Barkley uh to the uh the Bradley story.
8: No, do not get into it with the fans. Just take it and keep it moving. Our guy right. Joey
4: Bosa. Joey Bosa. Yep. He he barked back, man. It,
8: they got him on the hook.
4: <laughs> That's so what Philly, Philly just throws that line out there, and they say one or two things that are kind of funny, but kind of just like pierce you enough to want to say something back. And if you don't have fun with it, you go the opposite way and defend it. Oh, man, they just – it's like hounds. They all like wolves just surround you
1: and just eat and it, it up. It, yeah, well – uh Travis has been going to some of the Sixers games, hasn't he?
3: He's been going to Sixers and Eagles games for the last few
1: years. Right, so he's getting a full dose of seeing what it's like sitting in the crowd. Barkley, by the way, um when he played for the Sixers, the team was like perpetually stuck in like no man's land.
3: Oh, we'll get to that story. That that story's still coming. But I think it's interesting hearing the players' perspective on their view of the fans. Do you think that their perspective of the fans is valid?
1: It's I, I was having a conversation about this uh, Saturday, and about, you know, some people think, you know, they'll say that the eagles or, or or Philadelphia fans are the most knowledgeable. or, you know, and I say sometimes just being overly passionate doesn't make you knowledgeable. Correct. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a fine line between I love the games and the team, and I'm passionate. And I go to every game. Just because, you know, the guy who says, you know, I've been a season ticket hauler since 1942. Uh, just because you have season tickets doesn't mean you know any more about the game than anybody else does.
3: Right. It's interesting, though, to hear, like, an athlete's perspective of the fans. like Because you'll hear the next part, you know, Jason jumps into the conversation. They talk about what the Philly fans want from the players. And I want your reaction, Mike. Do you think... Their perspective. I don't even game. have to
1: hear Jason Kelsey say this. I know what what the
8: answer is. <laughs> as long as you play hard, they're cool. Yeah, uh, I I think you uh, still got to perform. If you're not uh, performing, they're going to be mad. Yeah, but
4: they'll respect you if you play hard. Yes, that's the big like. Even if you're not good to a certain extent, if you're a hustle player, Philadelphia will love you. And if you wear your heart on your sleeve, if they feel like you really care. That's the biggest thing to them,
8: well, caring and hard. I never have an issue in Philadelphia because they know us like, hey, I'm going to give y'all everything I got every single night. Yeah.
1: So is that Jason Kelsey taking a shot that, like, the player might stink, but as long as he tries hard, you know, they don't even care because they don't know the difference. Right. They just think a guy trying hard means Matters. he's good. <laughs> Like, I don't know, is he taking a shot in that? Uh... I don't know
3: if he's taking a shot, but it's an interesting perspective. You know, Barkley's saying, hey, if you play hard, the fans care. And Jason's like, yeah, but sometimes they like the guy who's not even that good just because he tries. Well, to-. Who,
1: who is the main guy? Um, Who is the main guy that, that's in that role? He's the guy that everybody loved, but he wasn't very good, but he you know, he did something that turned the fans Nick like... Nick Foles? No, well, Foles, but Aaron <laughs> Rowan when he ran into oh, the wall.
3: okay. See, the, the next guy I was going to think of was T.J. McConnell. Like, Sixer fans were love oh. with T.J. McConnell for a while there. But he was not even, like... Remember when people were saying, bench Ben Simmons and start T.J. McConnell? It was like, come on, people. Just because he plays hard, he dies on the floor. You know,
1: that kind of value. Yeah, and it's harder to find that guy in football, by the way.
3: It is, but I think that it's interesting to hear from Jason because you could argue Jason is the most popular player in the city at this point.
1: Yeah, we did the list last week. I think I had him at what, number five?
3: Yeah, you and Kincaid have basically like the top four the same, you know, and Kelsey has to be in that conversation because of the fact of, you know, who he is. He's won a championship and all that goes with that.
1: Um, Kelsey, oh, definitely, yeah. He's definitely one. I said he's. I had him at number five. I think but the
3: difference five. is Kelsey's going go to go the Hall of Fame one day. He's not some random hustle guy. He's not you know, you know. Everyone loves uh, a Vince Vipali. You know, Vince Vipali yeah. Invincible. You know, that that's a. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going into. Like I the guess Billy like Schweimer this year, well. you'll
1: get the um, like Reed Blankenship might be a, a candidate for that role. Is Cody Clemens getting to that role at this point? He might be. Yeah, Cody Clemens. He's kind of like the underdog guy, the every man's player. Yeah, it was John Mayberry Jr. for a while there. And although he wasn't like a he last just, year was
3: Nick May. People
1: liked. John Mayberry Jr. because he hit a lot of home runs right. in, like, a short amount of games. Yeah, I don't
3: know if he's really a hustle guy. But like, Nick Maton last year, he was a guy that was popular. Maybe. People were really mad when they traded
1: him. He hasn't done anything all year except for when he came here. I yeah, mean, he
3: hit a home run off Nolan, and he starts giving, like, hand gestures to his former for teammates. <laughs> um, you mentioned about how the Sixers weren't very good when Barkley was here. Well, I wanted to give you... Barkley's perspective on that, because Barkley tells a story. I have never heard this story before. Maybe you have, Mike, but I thought that Barkley's perspective on
8: why the team was
3: never good while he was here is this.
8: We got uh, number one pick in the draft, and I'm like, finally, I'm a, I said when I get Brad Darty, we're gonna start kicking some ass and it's easy. Ooh, okay. <laughs> That's who it would have been? Oh yeah. Brad Darty. Oh my gosh. So we go out celebrate, me and some of the guys, because we're like, tomorrow we're going to get Brad Doherty. So I get dropped off, I think, about 3 o'clock in the morning. My phone rings around 5.30. It's, it's, a, it's a great writer named Phil Jasner. I said, uh-huh. what the hell? He's like, I need to talk to you. It's important. I said, what's going on? He said, I want to talk to you about the trade. I said, who's been trading? He says, the Sixers traded number one pick in the draft. I said, Phil, the Sixers aren't that damn stupid to trade the number one pick in the draft. He said, yep. I said, feel? let me take a shower. I'll call you back in 30 minutes. <laughs> I, think, I take like a two-minute shower because i like, I want to hear the damn story that we that damn stupid. Yeah. We traded the number one pick in the draft to Cleveland for a guy yeah. named Roy Hansen, who was a good, solid player. Good guy, mm-hmm. good, solid player. And... From that point on, my career in Philadelphia just went down the toilet. It, it was brutal. Yeah. I mean, I was yeah. so pissed. I ended up playing there another four or five years, but we were not any good. And I, but I was just, oh man, it changed the whole yeah. dynamic of my career.
1: Yeah. Uh, by the way, Roy Henson stunk. He was being kind. Uh, nah, I mean, he wasn't that bad. He, he averaged like 14. He actually lives in Somerset County up in, uh, North Jersey. He did. He grew up there. But his, his years in Philadelphia, uh, in which he played two seasons for the Sixers, uh, he averaged 13 points a game. Brad Darty went on to become almost like, uh, basically a, a, a perennial,
2: um, uh, all star
1: player. Yeah. Uh, Barkley's not wrong about that. I mean, they uh, they trade the you have the number one overall pick in number the draft, number one pick, and you trade it for Roy Henson.
3: I mean, and by the way, Barkley didn't stop there.
1: Henson in Cleveland, by the way, averaged thirteen points a game. Like seriously, what were you thinking? That goes down. You think about all the different moves and trades and yada yadas that the this team top has five. made. Worst, right? People don't realize that that was you know. The Sixers got Roy Hinson, and it's not like there was all these other pieces. It was Roy Hinson for the number for one. the number one overall pick of the draft. And Roy Hinson, by the way, at that point, he averaged 13 points a game. He had been in the league for a couple of years. It wasn't like uh, – no, he scored 20 points or like 19 points a game with Cleveland the year that he got traded to Philly. But I don't – I mean, you look back at some of the blunders this organization has made, that's always left out because of the recent blunders they've made.
3: Barkley goes on to bemoan his experience playing without Brad Dougherty. I had to go to war with Manute Bow.
8: <laughs> <laughs> yeah! <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> Brad Dougherty and Now, Manute, Manute was a great guy. He's a big man now. Uh, he's that's a big. big man and a great dude. One of my favorite teammates, but I'm like, Brad Darty, Manute Bold, that doesn't work for me. <laughs> there's a there's a difference. There's a big difference. Well, now one, one made the All-Star team probably six or seven times, and one was just fun to be with.
1: There you go, yeah. It's fun to say his name. <laughs> well, it was just fun to be with. Uh that is like the story of Barkley when he has said in the past, like I asked for Shaq, and they got me Charles Shackleford. Shackleford. Yeah. Same thing. They had Barkley. The Sixers organization has perpetually done this. They get Charles Barkley. They can't find a guy to play him with. They trade for this guy, that guy. They keep trying to find someone. Then they finally trade him off. Allen Iverson, they can't figure out who to play next to him. They get him this guy, that guy. They ended up having to trade him off. And now it's seemingly happening for a third time here where they have a player. And they're all just unique. Iverson, this undersized two guard. Barkley was an undersized power forward. You know, back then, the power forwards were like six, eight, six, nine. Well, Barkley was like six, four. So you had this undersized power forward and they didn't know who to play next to him. Iverson, same problem. And now you're seeing the same problem with Embiid.
3: Yeah. Charles Barkley had to go to war Manute Ball and Alan Iverson had to go out there with Larry Hughes.
1: Not ideal. Roy Hinson and Manute Bowl. Sports Bash Live. Hey, coming up next, (laughs) the Oakland A's. The the Phillies play the A's later this week. But fans of the A's have scheduled a boycott. Not the kind of boycott you think, though. I'll explain coming up next on the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Now, Bash
0: on 97.3 ESPN.
1: ESPN. Alright, Sports Bash Live 973 ESPN, the 973 ESPN Free Mobile App. Uh Phillies this weekend, or with this later on in the week, the back end of the week. They're out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. They are in Arizona. They got a four-gamer in Arizona. They got three games this weekend. Yes. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They are in Oakland against the A's. The A's have won five in a row, by the way. And the A's. Are one of the worst teams we've ever seen, even though they won five straight games. The five game win streak has brought their record to 17 and 50. 17 and 50, including seven and 24 at home. Jeez, they won more games on the road. They're 10 and 26 on the road. So fans of the AIDS have scheduled a reverse boycott for tomorrow's game fans are going to pack the oakland coliseum to show ownership that the fans are not the problem they've already raised thirty thousand dollars and they're going to hand out seven thousand shirts in the parking lot that say sell these people are finally going to show up to the Oakland Coliseum for one day only to watch their a's in quote unquote protest of how bad they have been. They're playing the Rays. So listen to this. You've got Oakland at 17 and 50 and Tampa Bay at 48 and 20. That has to be maybe the biggest disparity in winning percentage, it may be in Major League Baseball history. The A's have won 25% of their games. Tampa Bay has won 70% of their games.
3: I mean, I, I feel bad for that fan base. You know, that fan base, I mean, the, first of all, their stadium's a dump. Okay, it's arguably the worst stadium in all of baseball.
1: Well, this is the whole problem. I mean, they are trying to get public funding to get them a new stadium.
3: But do they need public funding? That's that's the That's the debate here.
1: It's the debate, but when you go to, say, look at the NFL, Buffalo, they just got $850 million in public funding to help them build their stadium. Not all the money for the stadium, Tennessee, Vegas. Yeah,
3: it's about half the money.
1: All of these places are getting the public funding to help them build their stadiums. If you're the Oakland A's and you have the Oakland Alameda Coliseum, and you're looking around and saying, "Hey, we need to get public funding to get a state of a state of the art stadium to get up to where these other teams are." We haven't drawn flies in this place because, of in part of it's not a very attractive place to go. Yeah, listen, I don't. I'm not all like, "Hey, public funding has to be done," uh, but the team has been competitive out there over the years. I mean, they've out of nowhere been pretty darn good, actually.
3: Yeah, because they did a great job at you know, their minor leagues.
1: But even with all that, they can't draw and they can't get free agents. The stadium's a mess, the whole situation. But as David Sampson said, the whole thing in Vegas doesn't look like that's working either.
3: Yeah, there's no guarantee they're actually get the land that they want.
1: Uh, coming up on the other side, Bob Wankel is going to talk some fills with us as the Phillies will be in Oakland later this week. But they're going to Arizona tonight. But what did Bob see? His observations of the weekend, two out of three against the Dodgers. We're going to break that down and take a look at what that might mean for this team coming up next on the Sports Pass live on a day where we mentioned Sean Bradley and Manu Bowl in the same day. Follow that up, Bob Wankel.
0: This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. All
1: right, final hour of the show. It was a good weekend for the Phils. Two out of three at Citizens Bank Park against the Dodgers. What is happening now that wasn't happening before? We saw some lineup changes. We've seen some actual good pitching. Bob Wankel's observations at Crossing Broad Com as he joins us now on the Sports Fast Live on 97.3 ESPN. On this Monday, the Phils don't get a day off, though. They've got to go out to Arizona, and this is going to be an interesting test for them. The NL West leading the Arizona Diamondbacks fills a game and a half back in the wild card chase as we took a look at the weekend. And now two out of three, Bob, things are starting to change. It feels a little different around this team. <sighs>
9: Yeah, it does, Mike. I mean, listen, they they took advantage of some favorable pitching matchups over the weekend. Uh, The the bullpen game on Sunday instead of seeing Urias was huge. Um, But, you know, credit to them. They came out. They swung the bats well in the finale there. Uh, And and getting two out of three against a Dodgers team that really took it to them earlier last month in Los Angeles uh, is a really encouraging sign. So they've been able to stack some wins here together. And I think when you came into the month of June, you were hoping that Maybe, possibly, there was a path to them getting back to 500 by the end of the month. And instead, they're really one win away from being there right now. And so that's got to be pretty encouraging.
1: Let's look at some of the things that stood out. Let's go back to the Friday night and the game that Suarez pitched because he's now uh, compiled like three straight, if memory serves. You know, he pitched well again on Friday night, eight strikeouts, starting to kind of settle in and look more like his self uh, that we hope that you're going to get. And you go back and say, all right, if this guy had pitched the first month of the season, are they two or three games in the other direction?
9: Probably. Uh, I mean, listen, the the big thing for Ranger Suarez was, and going back to this this last start on Friday night, he had thrown the ball okay against the Mets. Uh, I thought he got away with quite a few mistakes in that game, but the results were good. He was able to build on that against the Nationals. Nationals do a good job of putting the ball in play, but they're not exactly a lethal lineup by any stretch. So then to go out and take those results, build on it against a really strong Dodgers lineup, and I thought he threw the ball extraordinarily well in that game. I think we've kind of cleared that Ranger Suarez hurdle now where you say, all right, he's back. This is what we can expect moving forward. Now, is he going to be that good? I don't know. But do you feel like you have a a solid number three option in this rotation now? I I think so.
1: Well, you say number three, but the guy who was signed to be the number three pitched well yesterday and some talk about why he got removed. I want to get into that with you a little bit here. Uh, But Walker threw well again uh, yesterday, and they pull him out in the fifth, and – I, I think that's something you'll probably see happen a lot. I know he was kind of fighting it at the time, uh, but Walker turning the corner a bit.
9: Yeah. So his last five starts, he has a 1.93 ERA. Uh, his ERA in three June starts is 1.69. He's been really good. Uh, it's, he's, he's had a hard time stacking consecutive starts together where he's been sharp. He too looks like he's sort of turned that corner here lately. Yesterday, five innings pitched, no runs, only two hits allowed. Uh, He would have liked to have gone deeper into that game, and he lobbied pretty hard to go deeper into that game. Afterwards, we talked to him uh, in the clubhouse, and he had said, hey, listen, you know, I tried three different times to remain in, Uh, but Rob, Rob wasn't going for it, wanted him out after five. But again, regardless of that, you still have to feel very good about where he's at, certainly where he was a month ago. You go back to... May 17th, he can't get out of the first inning against the San Francisco Giants. His ERA is sitting in the mid-sixes, and you're thinking four years, $72 million, and this guy can't even you get out of the first inning right now. Uh, so he's come quite a long way in a little less than a month and quelled some concerns
1: here. I want to get your take on this because obviously Thompson pulls Walker. Walker not happy. Then the fans get mad at Thompson for taking him out of the game. And, of course, Soto gives up a home run. All right. David Sampson was on the show last week. He was the president of the Marlins. When I asked him a question regarding the manager's
2: decision, this is
1: what he told me.
2: I promise you that the front office is involved and goes through... Pre-game, what the plan is and how it's going to work. We're with the manager before BP, after BP, right until the manager takes the field for the anthem. Then we're back in the manager's office after the game where we'll talk through what went on during the game that may not have been what we planned for. Or maybe the decision was made that was different than what we had spoken about. Or we'll talk about evaluating players who are not executing the way we need them to and talk about whether they need a rest or whether they need to be sent down. We'll talk to managers about all those things, but managers are the ones who really execute the plans that come from the front office.
1: All right, so he says the manager executes the plan that comes from the front office. In other words, did they say before the game, he's not facing the team for a third time, make sure you get him out.
9: Well, I think it's a little bit more complex than that. I think that they have to map out every single scenario. So to, to his point, yes, I mean, that is how it works with most organizations across Major League Baseball, analytics departments, front offices. It's a collaborative effort with the manager. And really, they're relying on that manager to make it make sense for the players. Can you communicate our messaging and our plan and our strategies to the players and get them to buy in? That's a big part of the managerial job these days. So are those decisions mapped out pregame? to a degree. I think when you look at this particular game yesterday, there's a couple different factors that you have to consider. Number one, Tywan Walker third time through the order against opponents this season hitting 300 against him. And you go, okay, no big deal. That in and of itself wouldn't be enough of a reason for me to yank a guy after five scoreless innings. But then you look at this Dodgers lineup and you say, all right, go back to Friday night. Philly's holding a four, one lead. Matt Strom's in the game. They're kind of on cruise control. It looks like they're going to get those last nine outs. End of story. But you see the potency of that Dodgers lineup. You blink, and all of a sudden, it's a tie game. So they know they're up 3 nothing on Sunday, and they have the top of the order. They had cleared bets already, but you still have Freeman, Smith, Muncy, and you look at those individual players. Now, Walker strikes out Freeman. In the first uh, inning, but in the second at bat, Freeman hits it out the center field, 102 mile an hour exit velocity. Smith had walked and singled against him, and then Muncy had driven a ball into the left center field gap that off the bat looked like it was going to be about five rows up. So he did not have very good matchups with that part of the order. And so I think the Phillies looked at it and said, okay, we've gotten five good innings from them. We know these struggles the third time through the order. And this is a part of the Dodgers lineup that can really hurt you and they can do it quickly. And I think, Mike, that they managed that game yesterday with the type of urgency that you would see them manage with in late September during a playoff push or even a postseason game. The Phillies like their bullpen. Fans might not like it. You might look at some of these ERAs and say, why are they in such a rush to get Gregory Soto into the game? His ERA is over five. I'm just telling you they view it as the strength of the team, and anytime that they can get these guys into a game by the fifth, sixth, seventh inning, they're going to do it. Yeah, um, Not the fifth, but the sixth and seventh. They're, they want to shorten the game with the bullpen.
1: Well, I want this is uh, more of what he said on that conversation. Take a listen. Uh, this is from David Sampson, the former president of the Marlins from his pod. Oh, actually, no, he was on our show and said this. Take a listen.
2: We will have discussed pregame. Here's what we're doing. We don't want that pitcher, say it's anybody, say it's Zach Wheeler. We don't want him going five innings if he throws 45 or more pitches in any inning early in the game. So literally to that level of detail, we're going to talk it through. And if there's a time where there's a mutiny, where the manager does something that we did not pre-approve or that we don't understand why he did it, That becomes a data point in our evaluation of that manager in terms of during game. Even use of the bullpen, we've gone through and mapped out who we want ideally in the seventh, eighth, ninth, who we want in the seventh if it's... Maybe our closer, because if you're a certain part of the lineup because of how the game goes, then we want the closer used in the seventh or eighth. All of that is discussed pregame. It's all done not just with analytics, but with discussion. And if managers don't follow through on that plan, then you get a problem.
1: You know, and I hear that and I look back to the team last year and say, man, that sounds a lot like the team last year. Hey, in the seventh inning, you're going to use Dominguez if these guys are up. And in the seventh inning, you're going to use Alvarado if these guys are up. And it, it just sounds like, so my mind shifts to, all right, is Sam Fold making a lot of these decisions before the game has started as the guy from Tampa, very analytical. How much of a voice does he have? For instance, making some observations over the weekend. They changed their lineup around. Harper was in the four hole. Turner went from four to two. Castiano's in the three hole. They're constantly moving their lineup around. And you wonder how much that's Rob Thompson or how much that's a collaborative effort.
9: Oh, I think it's almost entirely collaborative. And I don't want to uh, insinuate that Rob doesn't have a say in this. Different organizations are going to
1: allow the manager to have different degrees of interest. Real quick, Bob, though, hearing what Sampson said is not a surprise to you, correct, or is it? No, and and I think it's worked in
9: Philadelphia this way through the last three managers. This is not unique to the 2023 Phillies. And you can make an argument that the
1: reason that Girardi's not here is what Sampson said. He data points where he didn't follow along all that much.
9: Yeah, but I do think that beyond that, uh, that, that is, I think, a, a large part of the equation. But I do think that there's also a feel between the player and manager, and that's something you take into consideration. And I also think that you have to evaluate your own processes. So you can do this, and this is what a lot of teams do. They will talk about, all right, uh, if, if I dive into the data here, we like this matchup in this inning, uh, this certain swing path profiles better against this type of reliever. So we're going to acknowledge all of these different factors when we make our decisions. But if things aren't working, or you know that there's a lack of buy-in, you, I think, sometimes have to pause and and reevaluate what you do. As far as what happened from Girardi to Thompson, I don't think that the process has changed all that much. But I do think that there is probably acknowledgement that we need to be younger, and we need to play our younger guys more. We need to go with the Bryson Stotts of the world. And we have to develop roles for these guys because we're so over the top in terms of listening to the data and listening to the analytics that nobody's comfortable some of these guys are checking out. We, how do we change the feel? And, and the feel part of it and the buy-in part of it, whether you're playing 10U, high school, college, or major league baseball, it still matters. And the feeling changed when Rob was the manager.
1: All right, let's look at some of the other things. So, yeah, Rob puts this lineup together, or whoever put the lineup together. Trey Turner was in four. I think we hinted at it on Friday. they want him to stay at four? Do they want to creep him up in the lineup? Well, he was two yesterday. But overall, in the month of June, we're starting to see a definitive difference in Trey Turner.
9: Yeah, he was 10 for 24 on this past homestand. He had a couple homers, obviously. You go back to the beginning of the week three hits yesterday and and the biggest thing is this like we keep talking about trey turner and he hits the home run against the diamondbacks to help them avoid the sweep a couple weeks ago and you say okay maybe that's going to be the swing or the moment that gets trey turner going and then he goes out and he's absolutely dismal on the 10-game road trip across new york atlanta and washington it's not going to be one moment. It's not going to be that big hit, the one home run that sparks him. It's it, That's like a narrative-driven thing, like writers, talk show hosts, people like you and I, we love that stuff. But it's going to be about the consistent work and changing the swing. And he's done a lot with that team, uh, with the team's uh, hitting coaches, with different parts of the organization coming in and looking at what's going on with him. He's made some mechanical changes to the swing. And he's hitting the ball harder. And in my notes today, I did an observation piece on crossing broad. That was one of the things that I talked about. It was actually in the Phillies game notes before yesterday. Coming into yesterday's game, his average exit velocity was up to 96 miles per hour. That's top 10 across all qualified hitters in baseball. You go back to April, it was like at 83 miles an hour. May was 91. He's doing it more consistently. He's hitting the ball harder. And that, to me, if you're like, has Trey Turner finally turned the corner, that's the thing that you can really kind of hope on. Yeah. He's been more consistent, the contact has been better, and the numbers have been better.
1: Yeah, that, that that's something interesting, you know, and uh, if you want to go check out the piece over at crossingbroad.com, he kind of dives into, Bob does, uh, the fact that uh, not only is he getting hits, it's the way he's hitting the ball that is starting to change a little bit. And, you are you know, you talk about these numbers, exit, velo, what does it mean? I mean, if you hit a ball 15 miles an hour and it, you know, bloops in, it counts the same. But if you start hitting the ball hard consistently, things should start going your way more.
9: People always roll their eyes. Like the, the traditionalists, the old school people, they roll their eyes when they hear about exit velocity. And this isn't – I always kind of laugh at that because I understand that there are people that don't want to hear about analytics, don't want to hear about Statcast data, and that's that's totally fine. I I do understand that because I think that we get a little bit crazy with this stuff sometimes. But at the heart of baseball, what do you want to do? You want to go up and put a, a good swing on the ball, and you want to hit it hard, and you want to hit the ball hard consistently as often as you possibly can. And so, in a given at bat, do I want to change my entire swing approach to, to maximize my exit velo? Like people always like write off well. You know, cool, he hit the ball 107 miles an hour off the bat, but it was an out, so I don't care. I'd rather see him bloop one over the second baseman's head. i say maybe in isolation in one single event you want to see that, but look at what Trey Turner did in April. He was dinking and dunking and blooping his way to a 300 average, but he didn't hit anything hard. And so what ultimately happened? He fell off a cliff, and he dove down to 240 because his his contact profile was garbage, but now you start squaring up the ball on a more consistent basis, the hits are going to follow. I mean, that is the essence of hitting. Hit the ball hard, hit the ball hard often. And that's what he's
1: doing right now. Um, one guy who looked like he was turning the corner, it was for two days and it seemingly hasn't turned the corner, is JT Real Muto. What, uh, what's going on with JT?
9: Yeah, there's a lot here. And I think that you have to put a, a disclaimer on this. You go back to when Bryce Harper got hurt against the Padres last year and JT Real Muto was, was just terrible. I mean, people were wondering, is he done? Is it over? Is he, you know, is, is this kind of the end of JT Real Muto as an elite offensive catcher? And then from there on out, he was arguably the Phillies offensive MVP down the stretch and he ends up 20 plus home runs. The OPS hits over 800. He hits 280 for the season. I mean, he really turned things on. The final 75 games of the year, he hit, I believe it was 310. You go back, though, the first 50, 60 games of the year a season ago, and he was horrible. And and that's kind of where we're at again right now with him. Now, the OPS is over 700. He's actually ahead of where he was a year ago. But this past homestand, he was one for 17. And he had a couple games, like you mentioned, in Washington where he got things going. But if you go back before that and you drag this out to, like, the last 15, 20 games, he's hitting below 200. He's not walking. He's not getting on base. So I think that that raises some alarms here, you know, or, or, you know, raises some red flags. That being said, I do think it's kind of time to maybe dial back the workload here. He caught 17 postseason games last year, which you have to take into account. His season went longer. He caught more innings. And then this year, he started more games behind the plate than any player in baseball. He started 55 games at catcher. The next closest is 51. He's caught 28 more innings behind the plate than any other catcher in baseball this season. He's 32 years old, and I know he's a good player, and I know you want to keep his bat in the lineup. I I understand all of that. But at some point, and I'm not advocating for Garrett Stubbs to play three times a week here, (laughs) but I think you have to pick your – I think you have to pick – Different parts in the schedule to get him some rest. We saw what the Phillies did when Bryce Harper sat out in the opener against the Mets a couple weeks ago. They had a day off, and then everybody went crazy because he sat in the first game. They said he already had a day off. Why are they sitting him back-to-back days? I think that that's maybe the approach that the Phillies have to take with J.T. Romuto. Just find ways to give this guy a little bit of a physical reset.
1: And by the way, those days off were predetermined by the front office?
9: Yeah, the front – for sure. I mean, with some of the player input, hey, we need you to take off because we have data that suggests this is going to be beneficial to you in the long run. What do you want to do as well? And and Bryce Harper gets a say in that. Now, not all players do.
1: Mm. Uh, Let me ask Bob Wankel, uh, are you trusting of Craig Kimbrell?
9: Um. I will say this I mean you certainly look at the velocity and it's way up um and I think that that's a big part of him being successful um do I trust Craig Kimbrell he's going to stumble I mean he was he's he's had his moments Does it look
1: like though that he's the guy in the ninth or now that Alvarado back are they gonna do as Samson suggested hey if uh, there's lefties in, or is it just Kimbrell's the ninth inning guy
9: I think more often than not, if it's a toss-up, it's going to be Craig Kimbrell, but it's going to be exactly what you just mentioned. It's what part of the lineup are they in? Do we need to use Jose Alvarado earlier in the game for a certain part of the lineup in what you would put it, or, you know, terms of a high-leverage situation? So I do think it is a case-by-case basis. Like I don't expect that Craig Kimbrell is going to get 90% of the save opportunities moving forward. I think that they are going to kind of look at those matchups. When do we deploy our certain arms against certain parts of an opponent's lineup? Do I trust him? reasonably yeah i mean he's he's not going to be perfect but i do like the way he's thrown the ball overall here the last yeah month you, so. you
1: mentioned early in the conversation too bob Wankel crossing broad you know that they trust their bullpen they like their bullpen whether you do and i i i think it takes another step if they can get the dominguez that they had at the end of la- the playoffs or not even the end of la- he struggled stumbled down the stretch last year but he got great in the playoffs if they can get some semblance of consistency from that guy of that guy that they had in, in october
9: yeah, he's really actually been pretty good since about the 3rd week of April. He's had he's had even in some of his appearances times where he loses his command a little bit and you just don't feel like you're watching the same guy that you saw at his peak a season ago, but his numbers overall have been pretty good. Now, I know he got tagged yesterday on the home run, but he really has done a pretty nice job. You get this combination of Kimbrel, Soto, Alvarado, uh, I mean, they they like what they have in that bullpen. And, and they're big arms, high-velocity guys with swing-and-miss stuff. And they, they've they got a lot of different ways that they can attack you
1: late in games. Last thing for Bob Wankel is uh, June Kyle Schwarber. <laughs> I calm down a little
9: bit after the walk-off on Friday night. But anytime that people want to tell you that, the mental part of the game, confidence, comfort, don't truly matter. I mean, this is a perfect example of it. I think that he's a player that knows that he thrives after two months. I think that he does get more comfortable after two months. And as silly as it is, I mean, he's shown you now for three years. Because this wasn't just a 2022 Phillies thing. I mean, he did this the year before in 21, too, where he just went crazy. Uh And and we're seeing that there is some legitimacy to this whole June Kyle Schwerber
1: thing. but. Yeah. He did cool off a little bit the past two games. And uh, he's in the leadoff spot. I don't know where he's hitting tonight, but I would imagine he's there. I'm interested to see if they stick with Harper in that four-hole, or was that just for the day? Uh we'll find that out and I guess in a little bit here. I have not seen the lineup. It's uh they play nine forty tonight. When's that usually come out? About three hours before game time. So uh we'll we'll check that out. Bob Wankel is over at Crossing Broad. Uh check out the uh crossed up podcast. They put that out today. More pontification on the weekend as the uh, Phillies win two out of three, five and one on the homestand, and they head out for seven. Uh, four in Arizona, three in Oakland. How many people will be in Oakland
9: <laughs> for the weekend? Probably about they have. Four a, they're having a
1: reverse protest for the game tomorrow. They're filling oh. the stadium to show that it's not the fans that's the problem. So that should be fun. The Phillies will miss that. The red hot
9: Oakland A's. Yeah, they've red won. Hot. They've
1: won five in a row, and they're seventeen and fifty. Yes. And they're playing yeah, they Tampa are. today who's 48 and 20. That's unbelievable. Bob, I'll talk to you later, bud. Talk soon, man. Bob Wankel, crossing broad covers the Phils. Uh their po- podcast on the Phillies is called Crossed Up and uh, that is over at Crossing Broad. I'm Mike Hill. This is the Sports Bash. That was Bob Wankel. Good Phillies conversation. Uh, We typically like to get into a lot of fills, a lot of different things there, and we hit on a bunch. He tweeted this out. Think about this with Taiwan Walker, who pitched yesterday. Walker, April, 497. May, 611. June, 169. His last five starts, 28 innings, 19 strikeouts, 193 ERA. Pretty good for Taiwan Walker. Good stuff from Bob Wank. Always enjoy it. More Sports Bash coming up here on 97.3 ESPN. We got game five tonight. I picked the Nuggets in five when this series began. I don't have any reason to change my mind. And that's coming up next on the Sports Bash. I'll tell you why I like the Nuggets to win and close tonight. Next on the Bash.com.
0: Now, Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN.
1: 5 30, hanging out till 6. Got game night tonight. We got game five for the NBA Finals. The Nuggets are one win away. Think about this. The Nuggets are one win away from their first ever franchise nba championship they beat the heat 108 95 in game four you guys know the deal you go up 3-1 you're 35 and 1 all time you know the only team to blow a um 3-1 series lead you remember the team Blew a 3-1
3: series lead in There's the There's one
1: team. There's 35 35-1 record all time when a team goes up 3-1 in the NBA finals. Only one team has lost a 3-1 series lead. It didn't happen all that long ago. Uh was it the Warriors? Warriors 2016 had a 3-1 series lead and they blew that lead against LeBron and the
3: Cavs. You like to blame Draymond hitting LeBron in the uh the low region for that loss. <laughs> that's
1: right. That's right. Jamal Murray Friday night, 15 points, 12 assists. It was his fourth straight game with 10 or more assists. He's the first player to ever have at least 10 assists in his first career uh, four, uh first four career finals games. Now, people are beginning to see Murray, who had three double-digit assist games the whole regular season. Think about that. He is four in the finals. He had three all season long. What does that tell you about him? Well, people are starting to ask. The big conversation has been, is this Nuggets team ready to become the next team? You know, we saw the Warriors kind of was the 2010 to 2000. Twenty, I guess last year they won a championship too, but really 2016, uh, you know, like the last 10 years, the Warriors. Like like
3: 2015, the last year, basically. Yeah,
1: the Warriors, the last five years or so, a little bit longer than that, I guess, have been the franchise in the end. Look, the Warriors, people act like the Warriors are like the Lakers. The Warriors (laughs) were... Which Lakers? (laughs) Well, I'm talking about as a franchise, like oh, where the they just Yeah, like they're this like great franchise. Like the Warriors sucked my whole life. They were terrible. They From, were never any good. They had the they had the the Chris Mullen, Tim Hardaway, Mitch Richmond crew.
3: Yeah, the uh the, the run, run TMC.
1: Yeah. But they never won anything. People act like the Warriors are like this, you know, they had like a run of like about 8 years they've had here.
3: The Warriors had three little windows in their Franchise history. When they got out there, they had the Rick Barry years in the 70s, right? Then they had the run TMC you mentioned, and then the current yeah, those run
1: TMC teams were more fun than they were good. They were right. similar to the Lob City um, Clippers, where yes. they just had a lot of fun players, but they weren't really like a championship team. Correct. This is the best that they've ever been, and it's elevated their franchise perception to a whole other level. I mean, people view the Warriors now as if they are like a model franchise in the NBA. Now, granted, the last 10, I keep like kind of, they got Curry, and that changed the dynamics of this franchise. No question about it. I'm not downplaying it, but the conversation has been, are the Nuggets about to become the next team that's about to become? And the question is, like Golden State, let's be honest. People are acting like Golden State, again, Like it was like the Lakers. They were a bunch of nobodies until this run. Will Denver turn into like Golden State just was, where they are the team synonymous with, like, you know, are they going to be on Christmas Day all the time? Are they going to be in prime time all the time? Is Denver going to be that next team? I think they
3: can if they can maintain this unit. And I don't mean just Murray, Jokic. I mean all the other
1: pieces. Well, that's what Golden State was able to keep the Clay, Curry, Draymond together, and then they pulled in. Durant. But they also
3: had they had Iguodala for a few years there. They kept Sean Livingston there for years. They had other guys on like that. Kavon Looney's been there for basically the whole run. They had other guys who they're not the biggest things, but they were part of that success.
1: Yeah, exactly. But the core three guys have been there. And then they pulled Duran in. Right. So the core couple years three Durant guys for Denver would be Jokic, Murray, and Porter Jr.
3: Maybe. I mean, Porter hasn't had a very good series, really.
1: No, but he's the young guy.
3: Aaron, Aaron Gordon's had been a much more impactful player this series.
1: Yeah, and Gordon, people forget, they made that trade last year and got him from Orlando. It was one of those, like, afterthought kind of things. But he has fit in really, they're just really long and athletic. You know, Gordon, like 6'10, Porter Jr., 6'10. Here's the thing, Gordon's only
3: 27 years old.
1: Yeah, they have a good core. And that's what the conversation has kind of been is Denver ready to keep, can they keep this core group together? And are they going to be like the next five? Like it feels like Golden State's been around forever. When did, when did Golden State win that first championship? I want to say 2015. Let me double check. The first one when they had the three guys, and then they lost in 2016. And then did they win another one without Durant, or did they win no, They well, won two with Durant?
3: They won two with Durant, and then Durant, everybody got injured versus Kawhi and the Raptors. And then they went back last year, and they won.
1: So, yeah, 2022 they won. But how many – when did they win their first – with this group. With this group, right. Because this is really 2015. when. Right, 2015, and then they lost in 2016.
3: Right, and then they won two with Durant. Then yeah. they lost to the Raptors.
1: Then they, they had. They have four. They have four since
3: 20. They have, they have four since 2015.
1: Right, so, from tw- so they've been around for about eight years. Yes, yeah, seven, like eight this. years. Like this, right. They, they've had about an eight-year run of. And, of course, <laughs> think about this. One of the eight years, I don't want to say they tanked, they had injuries.
3: They had massive
1: injuries. They had Curry massive was injured, injury.
3: Clay remember when people forget Clay and Durant got injured in that finals. Then the next year after the finals, Curry got injured during that season.
1: Yeah, and then they had the second pick in the draft and completely whiffed.
3: Yeah, they got James Wiseman.
1: Yeah. See, people act like it's a everybody else does it right. The Sixers are the only team that make mistakes. Look, the great Golden State Warriors—they uh, had the no, you know, you had a team that knew was getting back Clay and and and, and Curry, stuff. and they yeah. had the chance to just add a player, and they take James Wiseman. But think about this—they could have had Lamelo Ball. Can you imagine that team with Lamelo Ball on it?
3: That would have been interesting. I don't know how it would have worked,
1: actually, but it would have been interesting. Uh, you're, you're right, I mean, because him and Curry... They're kind of similar. Yeah, but can you imagine those two in the backcourt together? It'd be fun to watch. Uh, other than that, I mean, Anthony Edwards was the number one pick. Wiseman went two. LaMelo Ball went three. After that, I don't really... There's not really a guy. Halliburton was in that draft, but he'd be another guy. You weren't going to take him at three. There was no other player to take in that in that two the only other guy in that two spot i guess you could have taken ball they went with wiseman but yeah, think about if they if they got that right
3: or if they would have traded the
1: pick killian Hayes um went 7 he's been a bust obi toppin went 8 he's not been very good i'm not
3: saying he should be the sixers and trade the number 1 pick for roy hinston but you could have traded the second <laughs> overall
1: pick for somebody that's exact in that draft which was not a great draft Maxie, by the way, at 21, he's probably like the third or fourth best player in there. He really might be, actually.
3: Um looking at this list. I mean, Cole Anthony, I mean, he's been good, but not great,
1: right? No, not, not, I mean, just okay. Desmond Bain's been okay. I mean, remember, he was picked 30th, so it's not like you have a guy that, you know, you were going to take at number two. That's one of those drafts like, um, the Simmons year where there was really, at the time, and now you're looking back at this draft, I mean, Patrick Williams, eh, Okoro, eh. Um, just not Just nothing in this draft class.
3: Remember when Obi Toppin was supposed
1: to maybe say that, you know, the next big thing? Well, that's because the rest of the class stunk. Right. I mean, Hallibur- they had three all-stars from that draft class. Halliburton. Um, uh, Paul Reed, by the way, was the second... Uh, third to p- last pick in that draft. And he might be one of the 10 best players in that draft. That's yeah. how bad that draft class was. If you sort the
3: draft by points per game, it's Edwards, Ball, Halliburton,
1: Bain, and Maxie. Yeah, not surprising. Then who's after Maxie? Cole Anthony. Yeah, Cole Anthony. Yeah, not good. So Golden State in that draft, their best. they had the number two pick. Their best form uh, – um, they, they should have traded that pick is what should have happened. Somebody should have yeah. – if they were getting calls on that night for the number two pick.
3: And that's why, for example, you know, to talk about a lot of these – it's not so easy just to go into a draft and pick a guy. And that's why people give the Nuggets a lot of credit because <laughs> Nuggets got Jokic in the second round.
1: By the way, I'm on um, – the 2023 NBA draft on Wikipedia. Yeah. And you know how they have, like, you know, who gets picked and everything. It's just right now, everything's blank except for round one, pick one. It says Victor Wambagnana, power forward, <laughs> France, San Antonio. Two blank, three blank. I'm just trying to, because I, 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 Denver, I want to see where Denver picks in this draft. I didn't know if they had some trades that came their way that had them picking. Well, they did they just make not.
3: a trade that got them future assets the other day.
1: I saw that. That's why I was wondering what, where they pick. They don't have a pick in this draft. Okay. No Denver. You got San Antonio, Charlotte, Portland, Houston, Detroit, Orlando, Indiana, Washington, Utah, Dallas, Orlando, Oklahoma City will be picking first. Um, Oklahoma City has one. I mean, they have a ton of picks, Oklahoma City, but yeah, Denver. I was wondering if they had a, if they had a, a situation similar to what Golden State...
3: OKC owns the draft for the next decade.
1: They only have the one pick in this draft, though. It's not... It's after this that they start getting... It yeah, up.
3: starting next year, it gets nuts.
1: Philadelphia does not have a pick. pick. Their pick was forfeited due to tampering for Daniel House. Yeah, stupid. You look back at that and say, what are you thinking? But, yeah, Denver no pick in this draft. Nah, it's just
3: the NBA being
1: nitpicking. I would agree. That was a little ridiculous. But th- th- you go back to that c- conversation they were having for most of the day, a lot of people talking about uh, Denver and whether or not they're about to become the, the, you know, like the Warriors. The Warriors have this eight-year run. You got Jokic, you got Murray, you got Porter, you got um, – I don't think it's a crazy question.
3: I think that's what I have my first instinct to say
1: because – Well, because Jokic. But also because of the rest of the And games. Murray, by the way. You have those two guys. I think Murray has proven in these finals that he is a legit next-level guy now.
3: Yeah, and I think, as I said before, Jokic and Murray seem like they were made to play together. And because it looks like they were made as like this perfect duo, it makes adding a guy like Aaron Gordon a little easier because you're, you're not having to look for some... I... Let me ask you a question, Mike. I heard somebody else say this, and I want to ask you. Do you think the era of, like, the 3-4 superstar team is dead?
1: I think it is dead, but I think it'll come—so it's not dead. It's die- It's dead right now, but I think, it, you know, like everything, it'll come back around at some point.
3: Because it feels like because of the salary cap restrictions and because of the way teams true. are building— you really can't afford more than two superstars. That's true. Point. The
1: way the new CBA has set up the uh, um, with the apron, salary structure, yeah, there's, there's whole first, it's going to be second, more difficult apron. to do this. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, with the way that the CBA is set up, yeah, I think you you probably will have seen the end of the three, um, the three superstar setup.
3: Yeah. So I think that's is where. This is where teams moving forward are going to have to look at organizations like the Nuggets and say, all right, what can we learn from them?
1: Yeah, and I guess um, the Nuggets are going to have, you know, the Jokic is, you know, you you don't let him go, obviously. And then you have Murray, those two. Can they afford to keep those two guys together? I
3: think they can, but I don't think they can. I think that the guy who's going to eventually have to be moved on, or made a decision on at least, maybe not move, but to make a decision on is Michael Porter Jr. He has not had a good NBA Finals. And I'm not saying he can never be a good player. He was a phenomenal player coming into college and considered a big prospect in the NBA. But you just have to wonder, you know, if they had to move on from somebody, it might be him.
1: uh, 609-403-0973. That's the text board if you want to chime in between now and the end of the show. Phil's tonight. Let me take one quick look before uh, we roll out tonight. Uh, the Phillies are in Arizona, so their lineup is not quite out yet. It probably will be out on game night, so stay posted for that. Uh Phil's heading to Arizona tonight. It's a 940 start, and, of course, uh, we'll get that lineup to you coming up when we have it. The, N- the NL voting for the All-Stars has come out. It looks like Bryce Harper number two uh in the DH spot. And number five for JT Romuto, number nine for uh, Nick Castellanos. I I think if the Phillies get one all-star, it's probably going to be Castellanos.
3: Castellanos having a really good year, and I don't think people have given enough credit for it. Yeah,
1: I'm trying to think, like, is there anybody else that's even in consideration? Schwarber's had a good week. (laughs) I mean, he might be in the home run derby again. I don't see that. I don't think you're going to see By him. the way,
3: someone else is going to win the Derby this year because Peter Lon's got that wrist injury.
1: That's true.
2: So
1: the, How long is he out for? The Derby's three not. Three to four weeks. Okay, he might be back by then, but he might not be able to participate. Right. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. I'll take a look on the other side. If there's anybody even in conversation to be the Phillies All-Star. I mean, this is going to be back in the day like when we were kids when the Phillies had like one guy, Mike Schmidt. That was it. I don't even think they wear the team's uniforms anymore, do they?
3: No, they have these special weird uniforms. All right,
1: we'll wrap up the show on the other side. Uh, Castellanos right now, probably the Phillies' lone all-star. More Sports Bash coming up.
0: Now, back to Sports Bash with Mike
1: Gill on 97.3 ESPN, South Jersey Sports Leader. All right, get ready to get out of here. 5.51, your time. Here we go. Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Getting ready to bolt. Uh, I'm looking through the Phillies real quick. there They don't have another. It, it's got to be Cassianos They don't got another guy. He's hitting 312, eight home runs, 38 RBI. The only other guy, I mean, that would have been in the conversation may have been Alvarado had he not got hurt. Other than that, I mean, Schwarber has 17 hit 170. You can't put him in a game. Um, Turner, no shot. I mean, Harper's missed too much time. He doesn't qualify for anything. I mean, he might get voted in, but that would be a different story. Um, If you're only getting one guy, it's got to be Castellano. The only other guy, maybe. No, you can't put anybody else in. I mean, you you, you mentioned uh, during the break, uh, Kimbrell. His ERA's in the fives.
3: Yeah, the ERA's a problem. But most of that ERA was early
1: early. Early, no question. Yeah. I'll give him that. I mean, he he's, look, I, we talked about it with Bob. I mean, he, he is, uh, he it, found himself again. He's, his velocity's there. And, you know, sometimes when you're a relief pitcher, you have one bad outing and that kind of implodes your ERA. Yeah, it changes the dynamics of the ERA for you. See what, um, what he's done, uh, for Kimbrell. See, April. He had a yeah in May. He had an eight ERA in June. He's one eighty, right? So he had a bad month of May, and that could have been one game in there somewhere where he just kind of fell apart. It happens. Happens probably more
3: often than he
1: actually Game five tonight. I got um I got the Nuggets. I don't think that uh, the Heat are going to uh, take this thing back to Miami. I think the Nuggets, I had them in five at the start, so I'm going to stick with them.
3: I think the Nuggets win tonight, I, I just don't see a way that they're going to let this game slip away at home. I think that's what it comes down to. I think that, Well, they
1: lost I, the game at home already.
3: Yeah, but that's the thing. Miami didn't win any games in their home.
1: That's what I'm saying. They've lost their game at home. I don't see them losing two. If they're going the, 9-0. and I think
3: the fact that Miami did not get any games at home is a sign that they're defeated.
1: Is anybody else today having an inordinate amount of robo spam calls? I'm getting another one right now. I've gotten two today. I've get, this is the fourth one I've had since I've been on the air today.
3: I got two that I know of. So I've gotten four today. You're a popular guy.
1: Jeez. What did a- you say? Anybody up for? else having robo scam calls all day today?
3: Whatever you signed up for, I don't want
1: it. <laughs> Nothing. It says it's a vehicle warranty scam. Oh, we get those once a week here on the station. The number that I keep getting. This is the fourth one I've got. This is the first time. This was a 973 area code, which is kind of interesting.
3: Oh, they got 609 numbers. No, the one so. I've
1: been getting all day is 609-336. And then the last four digits have been close, but they're, they haven't been the same any four times. Gotcha. But it's a one- 609-336. And then the, the last four digits have been close. But all day with this. That's crazy. It's amazing. The people are still doing phone scans. I guess people fall for it. Who doing? answers their phone anymore? I guess you see that 609. And some people are so... are Wow, Ah, They're just so curious. They have to know who's calling. Number that you don't know. If the numbers
3: is saved to my phone, I never,
1: never. All right, that's it. For me. Tomorrow, Phil's tonight. Uh, tomorrow, football at four. Adam will here. I'll uh, get his intel on Eagle OTAs Also, we'll continue to look at the Sixers and their possibility, Nick Nurse. We'll hear from him uh, from the Hoops Collective podcast. That's all coming up on tomorrow's show here on the Sports Pass Live on 97.3 ESPN.